welcome to episode three of the Retro Mecha Podcast. I'm your host Ian, and I'm here as usual with my co-host Craig. Say hello, Craig. Hi, everyone. How you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, pretty good, in fact. It's a lovely day. Yeah. Just uh, hoping I don't uh, cook. Because <laughs> I think I've got the window closed, so it'll eliminate a bit of noise there. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so those of you outside the UK, we are having an exceptionally warm patch at the moment. Temperatures are hitting yeah. like very, very high 20s, sort of 30 degrees at the moment. So, And we're just not built to to, uh, to withstand that in the UK, no, are we really? No, no, it's very <laughs> unusual. You can see everyone sort of fainting. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I've been, I know I've been painting parts of the house all morning and I'm, I'm absolutely uh, sweltering so. <laughs> today we're going to do the first part of our Macross retrospective so as we said in our first episode Craig and I are going to review whole franchises worth of yeah. anime so um, and today is our first one where we where we look at the legendary Macross franchise so in this episode we're going to look at the TV series the Flashback 2012 sequel OVA and the Do You Remember Love remake movie. So yeah. before we get into our reviews, um, something Craig and I sort of want to talk about. So unlike our American cousins who had Robotech mm-hmm. and had an introduction to Macross in the 80s, yeah. in the UK we never we never got uh, Robotech. Yeah, at least not at the time anyway. Not no. at the time of airing. We got much later, didn't we? We got it much, much later. So despite not sort of getting Robotech, we were still exposed to Robotech inadvertently. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've both talked about as well, so sort of seeing Macross before we knew it was Macross, was the Jetfire Transformer. That's right, yeah. Because um, they, they borrowed a couple of different uh, robot lines to make Transformers, including uh, the uh, the Valkyrie which became Jetfire, and they also borrowed like a random, um, completely random sort of like unrelated toy that became Shockwave, which was a strange one. That was like a, that wasn't even attached to like any sort of particularly big series or anything. It was just yeah. a one-off. But yeah, it's, it's a strange one that there's been a lot of um, kind of cross-pollination of, uh, of toys when it comes to like anime stuff. Yeah, because the other thing with Robotech is I remember the um, tabletop game. Right, I never saw that one back in the day. Yeah, there was because I used to be quite into tabletop gaming when I was sort of eleven through to about sort of mid-teens, and I do remember the Mac, there was a not Macross, a Robotech, and I think it was called Battletech, but it was basically Macross. Um, That's right. Yeah, they have. There's been um, some legal wrangles about that over the years. So there's been, in addition to the whole you know thing to do with Big yeah. West and Harmony Gold, there's also been loads of issues with the Battletech game as well. But I first remember um, seeing. Um, of an unbranded Valkyrie that was in kind of quite generic packaging without Macross or Robotech on it. And it was called something like, uh, I want to say something like Robot Fighter or something right. like that. And it was like packaged in the polystyrene in the sort of, uh, in the robot mode, in the Batroid uh, sort of form. And that was my yeah. first introduction to it. But for, it wasn't until many, many years later when I was reading Manga Mania and I found out about uh, both Robotech and Macross. Yeah. And, then kind of put it all together with like Jetfire being part of the line and everything. It wasn't so much later yeah. that I realised all that. Yeah, exactly. And I, it, it's exactly the same for me. It was Manga Mania UK that I remember. I think there was a an interview with Carl Masick in one episode, in one mm-hmm. issue of it, and that's basically where the whole Macross Robotic thing sort of clicked for me. And it was like, oh, actually, the <laughs> all this stuff that I've kind of liked for the last sort of seven or eight years. It's you know, again, mm-hmm. it was part of that whole uh, sort of discovery about anime and realizing that all this stuff that you liked was actually you know japanese or, or japan or 
you know was anime so because i remember the local toy shop there was a chain in the in the south uh, i can't remember what it was called i think it was called Beatties, and they used to have robotech mm. model kits yeah in there and again i remember seeing uh, i remember seeing um some uh, i think it was i'm pretty sure it was uh, Voltron and a couple of other um, sort of super robots. Yeah. Uh, there were different like branding or sort of generic branding in there. And my cousin uh, bought uh, some Voltron Lion bots or Go Lion yeah. uh, Lion bots. Well, they didn't have either of those names on the package, and neither Go Lion right, nor right. Uh, Voltron. Again, similar to that uh, Batroid uh, Valkyrie, you know, they were kind of just a generic robot toy. <laughs> at least to me at the time they were. Yeah, they? yeah. Because I remember looking at the. Um... The model kits in in the toy shop and i'd already seen star avengers by then so i was already sort of hooked on the the animated robot mm. thing and then i saw these robots and they looked really cool but i had no idea no idea what they were didn't even really associate them with transformers at that point either so um mm-hmm. you know it was just sort of something i saw completely uh, separate i think that must be really interesting that people who've grown up with the internet and can easily research this stuff yeah. is that you know it was a real journey of discovery back mm. then you know reading magazines like mangamania anime uk um, discovering things through maybe like uh, toys, computer games, and spin-offs and things. Yeah, yeah. It's like seeing. You know, I mean, there was. I do remember um, in later years, once I knew what Robotech was, going to Forbidden Planet and seeing Robotech comics, which you know just adapted stuff that was lifted from the Macross footage. Yeah, yeah. And um, and then like you know, like like you said before, a lot of what you were seeing kind of made sense and that. But when they'll never have that kind of same journey discovery that we did, like having to do all the detective work and digging. Yeah to figure all this stuff out and that's quite interesting yeah because i learned about mobile suit gundam through a video game magazine back mm-hmm. in i can't remember it was 89 when i got my mega drive i in the early 90s there was a magazine called megatech and mm-hmm. there was a video game called devastator which was uh, associated with a ova called d1 devastator and in the mm-hmm. review of that it had a thing about mobile suit gundam it was a little box because it was in sort of spin-off and that's really where I kind of started to learn about Gundam. It was it was through, like I say, a video game association rather than an anime association. A lot of the video game magazines back then covered uh, anime reviews. Mm. They covered a lot of Anger UK, Kaseki and Western Connections mm. tapes. And, and they had like full-blown reviews and a lot of adverts for those video yeah, labels and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember um, reading Superplay because although my brother had a Mega Drive and I was kind of lucky I had the best of both worlds because I was more of a Nintendo guy. But uh, Superplay had uh, the, the artist who did the covers did anime inspired covers, and right. there was always anime reviews in there of everything from like you know the guy with like three M's three eyes and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, all the all the big sort of manga UK releases were always uh, both promoted and and reviewed in there. Yeah, because I can remember in in Megatech, where it might have been computer and video games, but one of them they used to have like it was like a half page, but like the length rather than like the top or bottom, it was like a top to bottom half page yeah and a little column like a column that's it that's the word i was looking for thank you and um <laughs> it used to be whatever label at the time was released in the burn up series and I always mm-hmm. used to remember they used to have this long advert with the burn up with scramble and, yeah. and excess and whatever in it during the 90s when when they were coming out on, on videotape so yeah it was like i say video games magazines were were, were almost as important as the anime magazines because they used to Definitely, cover stuff yeah. and you used to get the association with the anime through the, the video game. So, you mm-hmm. know, it was maybe it was a different angle to finding out sure. about it because, the you know, the anime magazines would often cover what was coming out and then a bit more background than would, would broaden it. But some of the more obscure stuff used to mm-hmm. come by the by the video games, I think. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think it's you know there's still a bit of crossover with the two today because mm. you know you get a lot of anime adaptations in video games and like a lot of people play Japanese games and perhaps it introduced the franchises through playing a game of it just because the game looks good, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think I, so. There's still a bit of that today. You know, Bandai yeah, Namco release a lot of anime themed games yes, these days, yeah. and I've, I've seen a lot of forum discussions and things about games where people are coming to actually watching the anime through. Just playing the game for the first time and becoming interested in a franchise. So anyway, so that's our backgrounds with Macros. To say with a lot of this stuff, we <laughs> one of those things we're getting into it without realising what we were sort of uh, looking at really. Letting ourselves in, in, for. in, ourselves <laughs> in for exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so as I said, we're going to talk about Macros. So we'll uh, we'll start to get into our reviews of the series. Cho Jiku Yosai Macross, or Super Dimension Fortress Macross to give it its English name, was a 36-episode TV series from 1982. It was directed by Noboru Ishiguro, and the character designs were by Haruhiko Mikimoto. The mechanical designs were done by Soji Karamori and Kazutaka Miyataki. After the discovery of a crashed battleship of alien origin on Earth, the world's governments get together to form a new version of the UN to protect against the possibility of alien threats from outer space. However, not every country sees eye to eye, and so a series of wars known as the Unification Wars begin. In the meantime, the ship is repaired and reverse-engineered with a mixture of Earth and alien technology, and christened the SDF-1 Macross. Our first episode begins ten years later, when the Earth is at peace. However, during the launch ceremony of the Macross, everything changes. So we'll get into our review of the first episode of the Macross TV series. The episode starts off with a very large spaceship coming out of some sort of light speed event and then mm -hmm. heading towards Earth and then it flies through the atmosphere and then crashes into the sea. And then we get some narration that explains what's going on, the ship that it crashed in um, 1999 and then we see a time lapse through to mm -hmm. the present year and a bit of background about the unification wars that happened as a result of the discovery of the ship yeah 
seems like the Earth government sort of thought, you know, that we better be ready if uh, something like this is going to happen again, if there's going to be a an invasion from space, so we better get everyone, all the countries allied. And then that didn't go so well, leading to these uh, unification wars. So we get a load of background about that, and then we come to the present day, which is the Macross launch ceremony, and there's lots mm-hmm. of people sort of celebrating, and we see the various people on the on the ship, and we get the introduction of Captain Global, who's mm-hmm. come to be the captain of the Macross, and uh, he joins the bridge, and we get the introduction of all the bridge crew, higher sea yeah. Claudia and the uh, bridge bunnies yeah then we see there's a flight demonstration and then a small craft small aeroplane comes in and interrupts it and that's our yeah. introduction to Hikaru the uh, <laughs> hero of the piece sure and uh, immediately you know that Roy the character leading the flight demonstration knows this guy because they start to bicker and yeah <laughs> <laughs> get into it don't they <laughs> which is a good lead into the characters Hikaru gets out of his uh, aeroplane and they he meets with Roy uh, we see Roy eyeing up uh, a girl, and then we see the, the arrival of the Zentradi fleet in space. And when this happens, the Macross sun automatically starts to change and power up its main weapon. Yeah, um, at that point, it erupts with a massive sort of energy blast that flies into outer space and then destroys a couple of the uh, approaching Zentradi fleet. And so then we get our introduction to the first two Zentradi characters, Britai and Exodol. And then after that, we see uh, Captain Global laughing. He starts talking about the booby trap. Yeah, he laughs very maniacally at that point. <laughs> he does, very, very maniacally. So the booby trap that Global refers to is an old German trick from World War Two, where they leave something, a weapon behind and then run away and then use the... Uh, yeah, and then use it as an explosive and sort of yeah, surprise the enemy. And surprise the enemy, exactly. And then we see... Um, the Earth weapons, the armed one and two in uh, Earth orbit, they shoot and destroy some more Zentradi weapons. So in space, the Zentradi leaders, Britai and Exodol, can't believe that Earth, the humans have got the long-lost reactionary weaponry, as Exodol refers to, um, working again, and that they've been beaten by some Earth weapons. Yeah, they say that they didn't expect um, you know, such a sort of primitive culture to be able to to like sort of uh, repair and retrofit the ship. So while this attack's um, going on, the uh, fighters on the Macross scramble, and Hikaru ends up uh, in a Valkyrie, one of the fighters on the Macross, and he uh, scrambles into action. Yeah. And, and is uh, against shot his will, really. <laughs> against his will, and then gets uh, shot down. That's right. Yeah, and, yeah, and he ends up getting uh, shot down, doesn't he? And then, then basically uh, sort of smashing into a building and taking the building out. Yeah. And at this point as well, because he's um, getting instruction from uh, Hyacinth Misa. Misa on the bridge, and uh, you know he's sort of she's instructing him how to uh, work the Valkyrie because he he's um, lost his landing gear and he gets it into the uh, bateroid mode, doesn't he? Yeah, she said to, to change it to configuration B and there's that little lever. Yeah. With uh, B and G, so she switches it to B and then it transforms to the uh, bateroid robot mode mid-flight as it sort of collides with the yeah. <laughs> And then he comes face-to-face with a Zentradi battle pod. Yeah, the Regald. So at that point, sort of at this ba- start of this battle with the Zentradi battle pod, uh, that's basically where the episode ends. Yeah. And that's the first episode of Super Dimension Fortress Macross. So mm-hmm. it's a good episode, I think. I think it's a, I think it's a really solid start. It's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, 
and I really, really like the very beginning of it. I think mm-hmm. just this sort of big ship appears out of nowhere. It's very you know, mysterious. It is very mysterious. And the imagery of it coming through the atmosphere. Um, mm-hmm. With and, that kind of light effect as it enters, which you mentioned yeah. before. But the image of it, imagery of it flying through the earth, the sea, and, and then crashing, I think that's just really yeah, good. Yeah, and then it's, the sort of buildings being taken out by yeah. it and that sort of thing. Yeah, And exactly. we, we didn't mention that the setting is a place called South Ataria Island. Yeah. And that is where the kind of uh, launch ceremony is beginning. Um, and there's just some really beautiful scenery in general in this episode because of the sort of like island setting. And there's just a great attention to detail in this first episode, I feel. Yes, there is. And, I, you know, very quickly, you know, Global is this sort of long-standing captain, you know, mm-hmm. uncomfortable with the intention. But very quickly, you know, he means business. Um, yeah. And he comes on scene. But there's, and it's quite... But it's quite interesting, a few light-hearted moments. He comes through the door and bangs his head. He yeah. goes to put his pipe in and, you know, they snap it. You know, the, one of the bridge Yeah, Shami's like, corrects him, doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> can't, can't smoke up here. And he's like, oh, 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 you know. Well, I was of, just keeping it in my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he says. <laughs> so he's very, very, very serious. Um, mm-hmm. And, like, you know, their introduction. But it's also, there's, he's a human character. You know, he's a person. Exactly, yeah. Well, uh, so. I do love Global's character for that reason, you know. Yeah. He delivers the sort of big speeches, you know. Yeah. He's kind of like, he's a sort of stern authority figure, but he's not. He's got a sort of gentle side to him, and yeah. it's quite sort of like he really just cares about people. But um, this episode in general is really good at like introducing the characters. The bridge mm. crew, you get a good sense of who the bridge crew are. Yeah. Claudia sort of ribs Misa for like you know, not being sort of very feminine and not talking yeah. about guys and things. Yeah. And you know like talks about the fact she's all business and duty yes exactly and that is something yeah. that continues throughout the series but that gives mm. you that right right away in the first episode yeah shami's kind of like a bit of a goofball yeah you know like everyone's like oh brother when she says about not smoking in the bridge room because he just in she just interrupted global's kind of quite yeah. dramatic story about the world war ii booby trap yeah and the tactics that the zentradia using <laughs> and it just it's like this really tense moment that's just interrupted by humor yeah and it's I love that I love the the sort of balance that this first episode has. Yeah, and with um, Hikaru and Roy as well. Yeah, because you know, as soon as he gets on the microphone and he's like, yeah. "What are you doing?" Yeah, <laughs> you moron! <laughs> you just know that there's this history between them, and they have that kind of typical sort of like, kind of like a man's man relationship. Yeah, you know, they're that's always right. Giving yeah. each other, they're, giving um, each other a hard time, but they don't really mean it. Yeah, exactly. They're um, brothers in arms type things, mm. aren't they? They're um, they're each other's bro. Yeah. That's what I was looking That's for. That's exactly yeah. Yeah. And um, and Roy, <laughs> you know, as the uh, unification war ace pilot, you know, yeah. fighter pilot hero, you know, obviously a ladies' man. Yeah, know, checks always... out checks out uh, sort of mysterious girl's legs in the first episode. We'll, yeah. we'll get to her character a bit later on. So um, all the sort of stuff. Boasts of, he also boasts, doesn't he, of having shot down 180 planes. That's right, yeah. During during the unification wars. That's what yeah. I mean. He, he's he's your typical flyboy, you know, mm-hmm. Top Gun, Ace fighter pilot sort of character. And, and yeah. And and actually, the swagger and the sort of arrogance and the confidence in him is, you know, really well portrayed. You know, you can instantly about you within a few minutes, you know exactly what he's like. That's right. Yeah. And he, he kind of like he derides like Hickory's uh, achievements as well, doesn't he? Yeah. Like you know he says he, he says because Hickory says something about uh, winning the um, junior like junior pilot competition so many yeah. times. Like for 
and he says something like, uh, oh, you only won it like four times. And he's like, well, about four more, actually. He's like, all yeah. right, so eight, don't get a big head, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's that person who doesn't like someone stealing his thunder or, uh, at all, isn't he? Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah, so it's a really, really good introduction. A good introduction to the Zentradi characters as well. You know, they mm-hmm. appear. Don't really find a lot about them, but, you know, they're key people. Again, they've kind of got that screen presence, Britai, his look. He's obviously important. Yeah. So that's... we know that we get probably get the sense that he's like the commander or or the sort yeah. of like you know the superior. It does mention that Exodol is the archivist in the first episode. So yeah, we get. I mean, later episodes will expand on the fact that he has a kind of like, you know, like a an amazing memory that's like an electronic device. Yeah. You know, he just he just keeps all this information about the Zentradi and battle records and things in his mind like a sort of computer, and he can access that at any time, like much like a machine would be able to do. Yeah. He's kind of like a living hard drive, isn't he, really? That's right, yeah. <laughs> and and really going back to saying it's a nice-looking, you know, generally sort of quite nice-looking, there's um, there's a like a flyby shot of one of the Zentradi ships as it goes past, mm-hmm. and like the use of perspective to give mm-hmm. the ship real scale, like you get yeah. a real feeling that it's a massive ship. From, from, you do, you, know, really you, you really clever, do, yeah. Really, really clever use of camera angle. Um, mm-hmm. Or and perspective in in portraying that, I think you know, really, really clever. Yeah, it's it's just um just a sort of really impressive first episode in general. I think yeah. it's just so much. It, it dumps so much information in, you know, everything about the unification wars, the character relationships. Yeah. Um, the way the UN spacey has been like um sort of set up. Yeah. And you know, like the even just little character aside, like when the mayor's talking about how he'll miss the Macross's presence because it's been on South Atari Island yeah. for. Like the you know ever since it was kind of retrofitted and constructed, yeah, and they've got used to seeing it, and he even thinks it might have an effect on like business and commerce and stuff. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And he's like, you know, it's it's going to be a strange sort of seeing it take off and leave. Yeah, that's one of the things I like that again from the very first episode. It creates this very real world setting. Mm. You know, you've got real world economics coming into play. You know, there's a there's a political and economical aspect to mm-hmm. the people that are living and supporting this ship um and it's a very sort of down-to-earth even though it's got aliens and it's an alien ship that's crashed on south atari island there's a very human real world environment that it exists very much in. so yeah like the way the military is depicted in that i mean they might have uh, fighter jets to turn to robots but it's still grounded in terms of the sort of you know the the sort of setting the universe and the characters yeah. just makes it feel very Real, I would say. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of in-jokes in this first episode as well, but I think there's like some staff names or something on Roy's plane at one point and things like that. Yeah. There's a lot of little things like that in general in the series, lots of little like sort of subtle nods and visual yeah. gags and things. Yeah, and I think there's a little, whether it's an animation error or a bit of an in-joke, because uh, Hikaru's Valkyrie's code designation is VT-102, mm-hmm. and on one shot it says VT-1025, Mm-hmm. and it's like you know it's little things like that and it's like well is that is that a bit of again is that another in joke somewhere mm-hmm. or someone just generally making a mistake yeah. when it was animated speaking of the uh, animation and attention to detail and things that bit where Hikaru crashes the um, the Bactroid into the uh, building and takes it out mm. uh, we were just talking about this before we started to record there's a guy in the building he, get, he gets blown back out of the frame and it really yeah. looks like he's been taken out by the collision Yeah. <laughs> so it looks like Hikaru kind of scores his first accidental <laughs> kill at that point. <laughs> that's, that's, that's another good point to bring up because, again, it brings that kind of 
sort of real harshness that you had in mm. uh, uh, sort of mecha anime from that period. We've talked through Galleon and with Zambot Three that you mm-hmm. know seeing people vaporized and crushed and and whatever yeah. else. And even in it's not quite so explicit in this first episode, but mm-hmm. in the first episode you still see someone potentially consequences of, yeah. of the war. You know, yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so I think that kind of wraps up our first episode review how would you score this episode out of 10 who um i would probably say uh, about a nine yeah i i think it's just it does everything it needs to do really well it sets things up nicely gets that old intrigue going that we've talked about in previous episodes and it just it effortlessly dumps a lot of information on you it's going to be important later on yeah and sets up those characters perfectly I agree. I think it's a very, very good in- introduction to all the main characters. You get a nice sort of background to the universe. You get a good introduction to the Zentradi. You kind of see a little bit. You see a, a bit of a battle. It ends on quite a good, not quite a cliffhanger, but a kind of yeah. what you know what happens next type uh, ending. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I, I agree. A nine, I think. I think it's a very, very good first episode. So, after the initial battle with the Zentradi in episode 1, the Macross looks to escape, and it uses its fold system, effectively like a hyperspace jump system, to travel massive distances across space very quickly. And when it does that, it ends up in uh, Pluto's orbit, and with it, it takes the Daedalus and the Prometheus, which are a a submarine and an aircraft carrier, which were very close to the Macross on Atari Island, and it takes sort of most of the town on Atari Island with it. So in Pluto's orbit, you've got the Macross, the Daedalus, <laughs> the Prometheus, yeah. and most of the town. Exactly, all the civilians along with it, yeah. And from there, they um, they transfer all the civilians onto the Macross. And they then, because they were going to use Armed 1 and 2 to, to join up with the Macross. And in, and in their place, they end up using the Daedalus and Prometheus um, to create the arms of the of the Macross. That's right, and we and we also um, get a, a city, a new city, sort of formed inside the Macross from the kind of remnants of the old one that was yeah. taken along with South Atari Island. That becomes Macross Sea. And because the Macross is so big, it can basically absorb a full-size city inside yeah. it. So. <laughs> um, and also in these early episodes, sort of in episodes two and three, what we also get is this um, where Hikaru comes face to face with the Centradi and you get this sort of realisation that they're giants compared to humans Yeah. Um, and this shock and then uh, Roy, he explains to Hikaru that the Batroids were built the size that they were to be the same size as the Centradi. They knew this threat was coming basically. That's right, yeah And he, but the fact that they do look human disturbs Hikaru greatly, you know, he's, he's in real shock after he sees one for yeah. the first time because uh, he basically um, yeah. sees one emerge from a battle pod and uh, has to gun it down with uh, the Valkyrie, and he's, and you get that scene where he's just completely in shock because he had no idea what what to expect. Yeah, that's right, and and that's his first this first bit of combat as well, and he's kind of got that mm. um, shell shock absolutely effect, yeah. isn't he? Um, have, having to actually sort of shoot someone that looks human, so uh, quite an interesting sort of bit that sort of really very early on moulds his character a bit, doesn't it? Definitely, I would say so. Yeah, it's it's your first his first kind of glimpse into combat because he's obviously uh, anti-war in the first episode, as we mentioned. That's right, 
and um, yeah, and he's not a soldier. He's, he's just a stunt pilot. Mm-hmm. So um, he's now thrown into actually a, a fighter jet and having to actually fight fellow sort of human-looking beings. So uh, yeah, it's, he's just thrown into a completely different world all of a sudden from the one he knew. So Macross is essentially a mecha show and it is a show about war and everything. But really, the heart of Macross is a love story between mm-hmm. three characters, a bit of a love triangle that happens sure, between yeah. three characters. And for me, I think this is probably Macross's best aspect. Um, yeah, you know, I think this is the bit that really sort of cleverly sets the show apart. This, The TV series in particular sets it apart mm-hmm. a little bit from other mecha shows uh, at the time Definitely. so i mean interestingly for me i think that there's a lot of the shows where if romance was the focus and a love triangle was the focus it probably wouldn't be anywhere near as engaging to us but the fact it's done so well in the show yeah and the characters are so good it actually becomes a strength yeah i agree it's honestly like um i think that there's so many other shows that could have done it i mean this this it could have done it far worse than what it has i mean they've, they have made it really engaging and and sort of dramatic and if anyone was to sort of tell us that i would be so invested in a series that primarily had a big love triangle as, as one of the defining traits i'd probably say get out of time before i watched it yeah yeah <laughs> you know? but it is done really well i mean i saw this i think we both the same with the animago box sets um, that's right yeah and that was the first time i hadn't seen any robotech or anything before me neither i it. kind of avoided it because a lot of people had said you know that to check out Macross instead, and yeah, exactly. And I was I was very kind of anti like westernized versions, and I always have been. Just ever since like reading about some of the differences and things in the early days of Mangamania and stuff, and yeah, just thinking oh, I think I'd rather just wait for the, you know, full release. So when I first saw it, I had sort of no clue that really, you know, I'd seen pictures of the Valkyries and obviously the mm-hmm. Zentradi. So you know, my expectation was that it was just you know a war show. Mm, yeah, uh, but then Same when I saw it, much, yeah. you know, then having watched it, uh, you know, actually, within a few episodes, probably, you know, by sort of episode three or four, you're actually like, <laughs> oh, actually, this is really a character-driven show Very about so, yeah. these three characters and their story and their, well, I say their love story really, because it starts yeah. off right from the beginning when you're in episode two and Hikaru rescues Minmay. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so you get, it sort of sets off on that. They've got this relationship, you know, the, not a relationship, but sort of, you know, they've got this thing and they've had this interaction and that kind of, a, there's that spark between them. And then yeah. like in episode three, where Hikaru sort of makes this old lady reference to Misa, um, mm. who's obviously a little bit older, um, you mm-hmm. know, Min May's a very young girl, you mm-hmm. know, and all the bridge bunnies and Captain Global start sniggering, you know, yeah. So their relationships, you know, I like the way that it establishes that because uh, Min Mays and Hikaru's is established, you know, as this sort of spark during battle and they say, you know, Hikaru's sure. the hero. That's what I was trying to say. Like a kind of fateful encounter, I guess. Fateful encounter, exactly. But then Misa is Hikaru's superior um, mm. and she's giving him orders. And, you know, they're, they're initially their relationship is, is really sort of friction. You know? Yeah, it is, yeah. You know, sort of fractitious sort of relationship but then when we get into episode four and then the bit where they're trapped on the macros yeah you know that's where it the, you know it, their relationship really blossoms isn't it 
It does indeed. I mean, the thing about that episode is that it's an episode that is purely centered on their relationship. There's no action in it, or well, almost none. I mean, there was. Yeah. There's a scene where Hikaru tries to um, sort of use the uh, his, his jest to like get out of the macros and the, get back yeah. to Earth and leave uh, everything behind and sort of. Uh, it doesn't go too well, does it? Yeah, in the end it of doesn't. The again. <laughs> so there's not, and although during that scene there's a there's a bit of a battle going on with the Zentradi, almost all of it takes place inside a closed off section of the ship. Yeah. Where they're living, uh, sort of closed off from the rest of the Macross, and they're forced to survive for a couple of weeks on not yeah. very much. Yeah. And they grow closer to each other, and it becomes kind of like a castaway movie. Exactly. For the whole episode. Yes. Yeah. Exactly what it becomes. Yeah like a castaway it's like almost like something from the blue lagoon isn't it that mm, yeah that sort, that of sort of thing, thing. yeah because yeah. it's quite funny because there's that kind of young love bit because when minmay's getting showered and mm-hmm. he trying to sneak a you know he's that sort of naughty it's yeah that, it's that boyish thing to do isn't it yeah we mentioned that about the zambot three review there's yeah. a similar scene that, that wasn't there yeah, yeah. Where, where um you know th- where uh, he tries to take a peek and she gets gets kind of you know yeah. gets sort of, sort of seen fairly quickly as often happens. <laughs> you know, in the bit at the end where I think they start talking about getting married and you know she, well she falls asleep on him. You know, and there's that real closeness that starts to form between them, isn't there? Yeah, but uh, one thing I do need to mention about uh, Minmay though is while that is a sort of well handled episode and the relationship between them is like sort of burgeoning and it's quite sweet. Alarm bells do ring slightly when she talks about the possibility of, like, both killing themselves. Yeah, I know. <laughs> she goes from, like, you know, being his friend to them being quite close and possibly a bit of a romantic uh, relationship there to, to like, suicide pact in, like, five yeah. seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the point where it's like, I, I, I just thought to myself, if I wasn't stranded in that ship, I'd be out of there. <laughs> Yeah, it does. It does. You know, they do fit a lot of that in that episode. Quite, you know, there's a lot of that yeah. stuff in there, isn't there? But again, I think that's probably a realistic. If you were stuck in there for weeks and no that's one had found you, that's a good point. You, I know it is. Yeah. You know, if you realistic, it's like, what's worse? Is it is it worse to sit here and just starve to death in agony, or is mm-hmm. it, or do we just die on our own terms and maybe make it quick and yeah. painless or whatever? So. Exactly. I can, yeah. I, you know, again, it's kind of what we said a, a bit about the sort of real world setting. It, mm-hmm. The relationship, even in this early stages of how it's portrayed, does portray a lot of real kind of emotions and a lot of does. real world scenarios in it. And I think, you know, that's what's really good about it. It really is. I mean, um, the characters are so well drawn that you really feel for them. I, I think I just I feel an affinity for the characters in the series. Yeah. Um much more so than a lot of uh, anime of the era. I feel like they're such well-drawn people that, you know, a lot, quite a lot of them could be real. Yeah. And, um, you know, characters like Pikachu and Minmay and uh, Misa in particular, I really I really do like Misa as a character. Yeah. Their feelings just kind of resonate with us and I feel like there's a few moments I don't mind saying that I get, got kind of a bit teary-eyed while watching this. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I just, I really uh, do enjoy the characters in it and it's, it is that sort of thing where... I'm like 100% in the show when I'm watching it at times. Yeah, because it's, I <laughs> know, oh and it is, it's really engaging. It has got some cool action scenes, which we'll talk about later. But, you know, mm. actually, you want to just watch it again to see what happens with these three characters and mm. what's the next step. Because, again, through these sort of first third of the series, Minmay and Hikaru carry on. They go laundry shopping. You see, um, there's the bit with <laughs> Minmay's. Uh, birthday as I'm well. I'm laughing just because of the uh, the awkward uh, 
confrontation yeah. between the bridge crew and uh, that's right they bunk the bridge later. crew yeah <laughs> where he's like uh, it doesn't look very good uh, a guy like you going and shops like that <laughs> I suppose it's, that's a that's a good uh, sign of how the times has changed isn't it really yeah yeah <laughs> this coming out in 1982 well I think that's probably very representative of Japanese society mm. as well yeah a bit sort of reserved at times very reserved sort of thing, yeah, yeah especially that sort of thing and we also get a bit of background to Misa as well that she her boyfriend he mm. was in the military and he died on a mission to Mars Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a bit of a, a good sequence there where Hikaru rescues Misa, and then yes. that's that's I can't remember, that's episode seven I think, and that starts to form a bit of is, a yeah. sort of cool connection, connection, and a you know the, the sort of the, the fractitious relationship they had starts to sort of cool a bit, you know. It does, yeah. I mean, she is quite determined to die in that episode. Yeah, she wants to be left behind on a on a sort of on this like colony thing on Mars that's going to explode. And uh, Higuru comes in the Valkyrie and takes her away in Batroid mode using the robot's hand and kind of grabs her out of there. And she's quite willing to stay behind because she finds out the fate of uh, Ryber, who was the guy she liked when she was younger, and finds out that he's obviously died, doesn't she? So Yeah, that's right, yeah. It's, um, and I think she just gets so sort of distraught by that that she just kind of wants to be left alone to, yeah. to die, really. So that gives you a sense of, you know, just how much she sort of felt about this person. Yeah, and it's exactly. probably the first window into Misa as a character yeah. outside of like her interactions with the bridge crew, like a personal life. Yeah, and it's um it shows a bit of a, a sort of crack in the steely art, you know, steely yeah. outside that she has because up exactly, until this point yeah, cause... she's been very by the book, very mm. very strong military, you know, barking out orders. But yeah, you see a bit of a softer side to her. In this one. You definitely do, and and you know that sort of continues throughout the series. We get to see that actually she's quite an emotional and vulnerable person. Yeah. And a lot of the time she struggles to keep her emotions uh, from sort of you know boiling over to the surface. Uh, and that sort of command role that she's got uh, aboard the bridge crew can be very difficult for her at times, yeah, especially exactly. as as her and Hikaru's relationship starts to grow. Yeah, exactly. And then. On the back of that episode, that rescuing her, Hikaru gets a Medal of Honor for bravery, mm-hmm. and he ends up giving that to Minmay as a birthday present, you know. And there's that mm-hmm. kind of because she's like very much, well, I want a present, you know, where's my present, yeah. that sort of thing. Well, have you got me? <laughs> she's quite uh, expectant, isn't she? She's got she's a lot very, of, very, uh... yeah, and she kind <laughs> of knows her own mind, isn't it? I mean, poor Hikaru, mm-hmm. she's sort of in in a sort of sandwich of strong women, strong-minded women, isn't it? So. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> I really like that scene, actually, where he decides to give her the medal because he's like, you know, he really tries after he's been in a battle to, like, go to all the sort of shops in Macro City and he finds that uh, he finds that everywhere is shut. Yeah. And, he, you know, he desperately wanted to get her a present. And then he just comes to this realisation, I didn't expect to get this medal. It doesn't mean anything to us. Yeah. It really doesn't. It's just a piece of metal. It's, its significance is pretty big, the fact that I got, got it. But at the end of the day, I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. And so why don't I just give it to her and make her happy? And it does kind of show, like, you know, that he has got this kind of quite happy-go-lucky attitude and he is, he is sort of quite a likeable kid. Yeah, and um, yeah, and again, he's a bit coy because the way he kind of, when he runs, once he's thrown it up to min and he runs off, that kind of coyness, mm-hmm. it shows that, again, he's he's a young, kind of inexperienced, in love. Yeah, he's quite innocent, really. You know, innocent, yeah, there's a real innocence about that. Yeah, which is totally, like, the parallel of, uh, you know, it's totally, like, uh, different to Fokker, who's, like, sort of checking women out all the time, and <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing, you know? 
And that's what's but quite yeah. a nice um, you know, contrast, between... yeah, parallel and contrast mm. between those the two sort of main male leads in the first half of the series. Then there's the bit where there's the Miss Macross contest, mm-hmm. you know, and at this point, um, Hiku's actually asked Min May out on a date, and all he ends up doing is actually, he, you know, he skips duty to go and watch her at the concert hall, and even when he yeah. gets scrambled, he's watching it on the monitor <laughs> in the Valkyrie yeah, rather he's... than paying attention to what's going on <laughs> exactly yeah i mean one thing about his character is he's quite irresponsible at times <laughs> he does make some stupid decisions but we'll get we'll get uh, more to that when we talk about the characters individually but again that goes back to where there was a bit of a softening in dynamic between lisa and hikari again she starts berating she gets back on berating him because he's not paying attention mm-hmm. he's not he's he doesn't respond to the scramble because so, so misa's straight back onto giving him mm-hmm. a hard time again so uh yeah. You know, so that's, well, we start to see this kind of weave, you know, Hiku has eyes for Minmei, but there's this sort of weaving sort of relationship with Misa that's runs in parallel. Um, you sure, know, it's yeah. Quite, you know, and it's quite evident. And it's interesting that there's these things, you know, what's what's going on between these, you know, with Hikaru, between these two women. Definitely. I mean, the thing is about Minmei is that although, you know, she has a lot of interactions with Hikaru and there's that scene when they're stranded together, where she gets all sort of romantic and talks about marrying him, the next episode, she actually doesn't really seem to return his feelings in any way, no. in any meaningful way. And then there's that scene in that same episode, I believe it's episode, like, um, I think it's episode five, which is the one after where they're stranded. He basically comes to see her and he really wants to sort of see her in a meaningful way and like, you yeah. know, do something with her. Um, maybe go on a date or something and spend some good, like some quality time with her. Yeah. But the problem is that was kind of yesterday to her. Like she's yeah, quite sort yeah. of fickle, isn't she? She's, she Very, changes yeah. kind of like the wind and uh, emotions. She was really caught up in that moment, but then the next day she's very different. And Hikaru's thinking, you know, there's a there's a battle. I'm about. I'll probably be scrambled any time now. There's going to be a big battle tomorrow, and tomorrow I might be dead. Yeah, yeah. And so he wants that to be meaningful with her, but she just totally doesn't get that. And that's often the thing about Minmay is she's she doesn't quite understand the gravity of a lot of what's going on about it. No, no, she Found doesn't. Her the time. And again, she only turned sixteen in episode eight or whatever, so she's a very, very young girl and only sort of seen the Chinese restaurant that her parents run. So you know, you get mm-hmm. you get the impression that she's very green, wet behind the ears in mm-hmm. in terms of how the world works. So she has yeah. I, I sort of idealized or idealized view rather. Um, she definitely sees the military in very simple terms as well. Yeah, you know, she, she doesn't does, quite yeah. understand the complexities of war, really. No, no. The kind exactly. of moral aspects of it. And then as sort of this carries on, you know, there's sort of more arguments between Hikaru and Misa, you know, and often sort of ones that put Misa on the back foot, you know, because he. Yeah. Because he does really stand up to her at some point. You know, he's always just sort of he taking does. a bit of an ear bashing, but. Then he does actually turn around and sort of stand yeah, up. Yeah, kind of unload on her, really. He does. I mean, yeah. um, there's there's that episode, isn't there, where um, she talks about uh, what exactly is the catalyst for it. There's so he, he basically says something along the lines of, you know, it's okay for you sitting in any sort of comfy command post, you yeah. know, aboard the Macross. I'm risking my life out here in the sort of uh, in the Valkyrie, you know, every day. Yeah. And he kind of like, uh, you know, he makes her think a little bit about how she's sort of acted. Yeah, and she feels really bad about that. Yeah, that's what I mean. Quite a while. And that's the first time Hikaru's kind of got the upper hand of her and put her on the back foot. Um, and then he ends up escorting her when they go off before they end up getting captured by the Zentradi. 
you know, it's almost like a it feels like fate that bit mm-hmm. where where that happens. Definitely, yeah, that's a big turn point in the relationship. Because at this point as well, when all that's happening, Min May's career is starting to, you know, having one Miss Macross, she's now a superstar and she's got a singing career and yeah, and all the rest of she's it. She's got like an album deal and TV appearances and things and. And he he needs to kind of schedule an appointment to see her half the time. Yeah, <laughs> he can't. It's not just as easy as going over and seeing her or picking up the phone. You know, he's got to she's she's got to have a day off from like her kind of appearances and things to to fit in time for him. And that's really interesting as well because it's through the that that third of the series, middle sort of third of the series, is you see Min May get further and further away from mm. Hikaru, and then mm-hmm. start to get closer. In a very, very bumpy sort of way. Yeah. To Misa. There's quite a few bits along the way, and you kind of feel for Hikaru, because there's one bit where, you know, she just introduces him as a as a friend. And mm-hmm. when Kaifun turns up the scene, who's um, Minmei's cousin, you know, there's mm-hmm. this instant love rival, who actually becomes a love rival to both of the women in his life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so... Just quite interesting. <laughs> because, I mean, it is 1982, but cousins, you know... Yeah. It's, it is a bit uh, creepy, you know, though. It's it's a bit creepy, but we'll look past that. You know. <laughs> what are the what are the legalities surrounding that sort of thing in Japan? I have no is idea. that like is that an acceptable thing? I don't know. It's, I don't. I don't know actually. I'd be interested to know actually, because I mean, if it's like a cousin that's you know it's a direct cousin, then it's not a one that's like far removed. Mm. It's still you still frown on that a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, I mean it's. I reckon it was probably one of those things that was probably more acceptable in Japanese society, possibly. Mm, sure. Uh, I, I don't know whether I'm right or wrong on it, but the way it's portrayed in this, given that it was mm. a kid's show mm. uh, and all the rest of it... You'd I, think I, it must have been somewhat acceptable It at must some have been point. somewhat acceptable, yeah. Yeah. This reminds us of the uh, Calvin Harris song that was acceptable in the 80s. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, going back to Kaifun for a second... Um, it's a strange thing with Kaifun joining the kind of love triangle uh, thing because, you know, there's no real direct exploration of whether Minmei and him actually did have a physical relationship or not. Yeah. Because they're with each other for quite a long time mm. in terms of, like, you know, she later becomes his kind of manager. Sorry, he later becomes her manager and schedules appointments for her and everything, and they're yeah. always together. And people... There's a scene early on when Kaifun's introduced when... Um, it seems like people get the wrong end of the stick about the fact they're together because there is no relationship at that point, and she kind of doesn't correct them. Yeah. And then it almost seems like that just goes on being like a kind of misconception that they're together. Yeah. That they, they, they live together and stuff because they, you know, they're always together because of the career. It's a very strange thing with Kaifun because there's never really any complete 100% acknowledgement that they were in a relationship. No. You get more the sense that he was living with her because he was a manager, because he was promoting her, yeah. doing her tours and everything, and it was more convenient that way. But it's almost like the world at large think that they are together. Yeah. Uh, rather than there being a definite relationship between the two of them. Yeah, and it isn't, because he goes to sort of talk about them getting married, and it's only at that point does she actually say, well, no, I'm not getting married to you. Yeah. You know, so exactly. it's, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a weird one. And is it like just a kind of relationship of convenience sort of thing, like yeah. you know, in the way that they're always together? It's it is a funny one. But to Hikaru's eyes, though, he sees it mm. as her as them being a, a relationship, and so that distance. Sort of the public, yeah. And because there's a few times where she introduces him as his friend, and you know, he's so sort of like disconcerted. It's like, well, ooh, you know, he's really down about it. 
Yeah, he is, yeah. Because to him, there's definitely something more. Yeah. And like I say, she just doesn't always kind of reciprocate his feelings or... You know, one day she's she's got uh, she seems to have a very different view on the relationship to the next. You know, and um, and that kind of pushes him towards the relationship with Misa, and you know they kind of start to get a bit closer. The bit with Kaifun introduced as well, because there's um there's a bit where Cla- they're on the bridge, and Claudia says to she says to Hikaru, "There's someone much better suited to you," meaning yeah. Misa, but he doesn't really mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't really, really get play. it, does he? And then there's a bit where She's talking, Claudia's talking to Misa, referring to Hikaru, but Misa's mm-hmm. thinking of Kaifen because he looks That's like right. her dead... Ryber. Uh, Ryber, her dead boyfriend, yeah. Yeah, and it just, it, you know, becomes very sort of messy, like, um, especially in the sort of uh, post-war episodes where they're almost sort of, uh, you know, they, they, re- they definitely have, they, they've reached that point where they definitely realise they've got feelings for each other. But there's still vestiges of the relationship with Min Min getting in the way. Yeah, because it's Misa's obsession with Kaifen and uh, Reba ultimately leads to her making the mistake with the Daedalus attack that, you know, mm-hmm. she ends up shooting Hikaru down and he ends up in hospital. And there's and then after that, you know, Hayasei, she kind of goes to make a kind of peace offering with Hikaru after that, doesn't she? She feels very, very, yeah, very, very does, guilty yeah. about that. And that's, you know, that's that bit where Claudia's trying to sort of matchmake a little bit be- between them, but it sure. doesn't really pay off, does it? <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> so th- there is actually one scene that shows uh, a kiss between Kaifun and Minmei, and Hikaru sees it, doesn't he? And he, he sort of, like, uh, backs away and kind of, like, you know, just leaves, like, uh, after he sees that. But, you know, it's it's not indicative of their relationship as a whole. You know, you don't... You'd get the sense that they're not exactly like madly in love or anything. It's just that scene is there is just a kiss between them. Yeah, and that kind of really sort of shuts off Hikaru. He thinks their relationship is is no relationship there at all, really. And through that, Misa goes off to Earth and sees her dad um, as part of the UN forces. And you can see that through that, uh, there's a, there's quite a touching scene where. I think they've kind of had a bit of an argument, but they're looking at each other in the ships through mm-hmm. the windows as, as they separate, you know, and you can kind of see that there is, that relationship is actually continuing to blossom. Um, Definitely, And then yeah. the bit sort of that kind of closes the first arc out, when Hikaru goes off to sort of fight this final battle, uh, you know, he, he tells Minmei that he loved her, and Minmei's yeah, quite he, shocked. Interestingly... It is the past tense as well. He says yeah. that he, he loved her rather than that he does. Yeah, and Minmay tells Hikaru that in that episode as well that she only ever thought of him as a friend. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of that episode, after that battle, then Misa and Hikaru are like fully reconciled, and you know they mm. end the episode going off hand in hand. So, and it feels like he's ended up with the right person. Yeah, really. definitely. Yeah, because that's the um, episode twenty-seven, isn't it? Which is yeah. the final battle against the Zentradi. Yeah. But interestingly, we then get like a time skip, don't we, in like mm. post-war episodes. So their relationship isn't fully cemented after that, and we no. and there's more drama. But actually, you know, the funny thing about that is that there. Are, I mean, this show's 36 episodes long, but never once does this sort of back and forth become tedious. Like I feel like it's always engaging. Yeah. There are a couple of times when Higuru or Mesa makes a daft mistake, and you're like, you yeah. know, you can't believe what they've just done, and you're like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> why did he have to see her do that 
oh why did she have to say I do that but at the end of the day it's still engaging and you still feel for these characters yeah and through the final nine episodes it kind of back and forths again between Hikaru sort of between the two girls because you see him mm-hmm. living with Misa again I'm not quite sure what the relationship there it does seem a bit odd they don't it looks it looks like she of... comes she has a key to his apartment yeah and she kind of comes around and cleans and tidies up for him and like maybe makes his meals or something yeah she kind of seems to be like more looking after him than living She's with like him mothering him the... rather than yeah yeah I get the sense that he doesn't exactly live with her in a domestic way, but yeah. she just goes around and sorts his stuff out in between his missions and maybe goes to see him once in a while, but she's not actually living there. She just has the keys. Yeah. That was what I got from it anyway. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't quite work out what was going on there. It was a bit of a... It looked like a <laughs> very the odd... only definitive thing you see is she goes around and she cleans and she does a few things in the house and she puts his keys in the letterbox, doesn't she, yeah. in, in like the mailbox. And uh, there's no real discussion of like you know them living together as a couple or anything, so... I think that is just that. I think it's just a case of, you know, she is kind of mothering him and looking after him a bit. Yeah, because then really? she, gets, cause she gets, like, frustrated that he has this album of... Um, yeah, an album of photographs. Photographs, and, and she yeah, ends very up... very mid-centric. Yeah, <laughs> and then she ends up creating an album with pictures of her as well. Mm-hmm. So there's obviously, it's like, well, she's not giving up just yet. And then, mm-hmm. as it again, as that relationship carries on, you know, he seems to be growing closer and closer to Misa, and then there's the episode where he's supposed to be going on a date with her and he sets this date up with her and then Min Mei rings and says, oh, actually, I want yes. to see you. And at the drop of a hat, he just leaves Min Mei there. Mm. And it's like, and you kind of think, what a git, you know? Yeah, it's like... absolutely. Yeah, you do. And it's and that's the thing about Hikari's character is he can be very, like, for want of a better phrase, wishy-washy, can't he? Yeah. He, he needs a bit more of a spine at times. The relationship between Misa and him has been building into something quite beautiful, really. Yeah. Um, you know, it's becoming quite sort of romantic and quite, you know, there's there's some definite like tension between the two of them. Yeah. But because Minmay is like sort of he's at he's at a beck and call, he just runs yeah, back to absolutely. Her yeah. Straight away. And you do think, you know, you absolutely <laughs> Yeah, I mean I, I couldn't believe it. It was you know, it was it was absolutely shocking. I mean I've seen the series more than once but I'd actually forgotten about that part. I had it's been a long long time since I last watched it and I'd totally forgotten that he did that. So it did come as a bit of a shock again. Yeah, and the other <laughs> bit that makes it even even worse is that, you know, Min Mei gives him the scarf and it's for mm-hmm. two people and then he ends up going back and finishing the date with Misa and he puts yeah. a scarf around her and <laughs> then she sees it says, you know, it's LM embroidered, loves, isn't it? Yeah, embroidered with Lin Min Mei loves Hikaru Ichigo. And, <laughs> uh, and like, you know, and then Misa quite rightly is like, Right, you're wrapping it around the wrong person and storms off, and you you kind of yeah. think, what a get, you know. You do, yeah. You know, it's like you get everything you deserve there. <laughs> Absolutely. And you're very much on his side throughout the series, even when he does make mistakes, yeah. and he does do some of the stupid things. But at that point, you're just like slapping your head and going, yeah. oh my God. And it's like you get everything you deserve there, mate. Absolutely, <laughs> you know. But, 100%, yeah. But then we get quite an interesting episode towards the end where Misa and Hikaru uh, have had an argument, you know, has, has another spat. And at the start of the next episode, she's sat there sort of ruminating about it. And Claudia, sure. you know, sits down and they have a bit of a girl chat and everything. And, mm-hmm. you know, it brings out the tea to try and get it, you know, and that. Yeah, it says you can, maybe you can come out to your person, you can drink this together. Yeah. Gives them a kind of excuse to, yeah. to get them round. And get them together, and again, that doesn't go particularly smoothly. But ultimately, you know, they do get together and, and sort it out. Yeah. So the, there's the scene where um, 
Pigru finds finds out that somebody, uh, I believe it's Vanessa and the bridge crew, tells him that uh, that Misa said that he was sick, when actually yeah. he wasn't. He was spending time with Minmay. She she went over to his apartment, saw through a crack in the door that she was mm. over, and she asked if she could stay the night. And she just gets out of there, and she's devastated, and she's like crying in the street. Yeah. Some guy comes up to her, like thinking she's sort of drunk and like emotional, and <laughs> walks yeah. away. And then um, there's a scene later on where he confronts her about uh, why he didn't uh, get the call to scramble. Some why Vanessa like said, oh she, oh she said he was sick, and she basically just sort of puts like doubt on like, the future together. And then it just cuts to a scene later on with uh, with Minmay, and uh, we don't get to find out what happened in that conversation. No. We know that it didn't go very well, but it's very ambiguous. And there's the same level of ambiguity to the scene where um, he kisses uh, Minmay like in season Christmas weather with his candle. And it just fades to black. Because at that point, Minmay's asking Hikaru to quit the military because she's very worried that's while right. he's off scrambling. And they sit down to Christmas dinner and you say, they have that kiss and that's the end of the show. Mm-hmm. And then in the final episode, it starts with a very full-on Misa and she's thinking of quitting. And Global knows exactly why she's thinking of quitting. Mm-hmm. It's boy trouble. Yeah, it's you know, not a secret to anyone anymore, not, is no. it? <laughs> the whole bridge crew are sort of talking about it. You know, and then Global kind of gives her a pep tour and says, oh, look, you know, I want you to be a captain on another ship. She's made the decision to go on this sort of exploration craft as the uh, space immigration plan that Global mm-hmm. wants her to do. And she goes to see Hikaru and she tells him she's leaving and that she loves him. And Hikaru goes to go after her, but Minmay stops. Um, mm. And just it, then there's a Zentradi attack, isn't there? Cause yeah. Because in this part, portion of the show, uh, Kamijin's got all these rebels together, and even though there's been peace for a while, he's kind of like planning to go back to the old days, isn't he? So yeah. we get this like heart-in-mouth moment where everything's interrupted and you know you can't get to her in time, there's a big explosion, and suddenly there's an attack and he's called back into action at exactly the worst time. Then you get this kind of final scene and Minmay kind of, I think, once he could run after Misa, accepts that actually he does love her rather than... Yeah. You know, it's Misa rather than... She finally accepts it and um, she says she's going to go off and sort of create her own songs again and that she'd like to come back to, you know... To Misa's ship. Misa's ship and sing on her ship and Misa says, that's fine. Minmay goes and Misa asks Higuru, well, are you going to go after her? And... He says no, and they and they end up together, and and, and ultimately mm-hmm. he grew, I think, has ended up with the right with the right person. Definitely, yeah, because I feel like a lot of love triangle things. I find a lot of love, love triangle things in just you know just in general media, not even just in anime, quite frustrating at times. Yeah. I often feel like people end up with the wrong person. Yeah. <laughs> and I often think, you know, irrespective of looks or like sort of attractiveness or anything, yeah. just off the character interactions and the way people treat each other, you just think. No, she's tr- she's treated you far better. Yeah. You've obviously you've got a lot more in common. Yeah. You're clearly very similar <laughs> people. Why have you ended up with the bitchy but <laughs> attractive one? Yeah. I just, oh, no. I just don't get it. It's, a lot of the time it seems to happen that way. <laughs> but yeah, I feel that's what is great about Microsoft. I really do feel like he does end up with the right person at the yeah. end. Yeah. And it's not um, a smooth ride. It's very bumpy along the way, mm. and it has interesting. You know, as we said, the way it back and forths between them, between each other, because there's there's a bit towards the end where Minmay defends Misa against Kaifen. Kaifen's having a, mm. a pop at Misa, and you know, and, and again, there's that kind of sort of reconciliation between them a little bit, and you know, their sure. relationship changes a little bit, and they kind of understand each other a bit more as well. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a very dynamic 
situation over the whole 36 episodes. And sure, yeah. really, as you watch it, it could go either way. And that's what's yeah, really interesting. Uh, it comes back and forth. Minmay always has this Hold has this pull, exactly this hole, and I say this pull over Hikaru, and you can understand how that was forged in the early episodes when he rescues yeah. her in episode two, and they end up trapped and sort of cast away on the, the Macross for a whole episode mm-hmm. uh, for weeks on end. So it's interesting how it goes, but. You know, Misa has to learn to, you know, so that she's got to change. You see her character. She yeah. can't be she can't be really hard and this tough person. And mm-hmm. she doesn't really want to be like that. She actually does want to have a boyfriend. Because there's a bit where she's holding the Max and Milia's baby. Mm-hmm. And Claudia's teasing her about, you know, and that kind of softens Yeah, she says, like, you look good, you look good with, a, with a child in your yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, and I think that she's not really this stern... No. Sort of like authority figure, she she is very sensitive and vulnerable. Yeah. But she doesn't yet let that show. No. And she she has to keep her emotions buried down a lot in it. Yeah. And often it's difficult for her to do so, like I said earlier on. And I think that's why I just feel a real affinity for a character. She's just yeah. this very sensitive, sort of soulful person who's quite emotional. Yeah. But she's in a situation a lot of the time where she kind of needs to like hold it back. And as things get difficult with uh, with Hikaru and she. She like you know she can't stand close to the end. She almost can't stand to be around him when no. when she thinks that Minmay has stolen him. Uh, she's gonna have to like leave, and then that's when Global announces actually I want you to be the captain of your own ship. And she sort of you know is is kind of like changes her mind. But you know by that point she can't even sort of contain those emotions anymore. She actually just wants to outright quit. Yeah. And I think that's just a really good indication of the character. You know, and you start to see those weaknesses and that crack in the armor that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, when she gets kidnapped and the two of them are in a cell, Higuru uh, and her are in a cell, and you get this quite good uh, closeness forming between the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, the backgrounds of the two girls as well. So Min Mei is this young girl, like, like we said, quite sheltered, and you can see like the the episode where Higuru uh, takes her back to Japan to meet see her parents again. Um, they're mm-hmm. really worried about her. They wanted to stay with them, but she's very headstrong. She's like, no, 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 I'm a superstar now, and I've got to go back to the Macross, and I'm going to do my own thing regardless of what you say. And even mm-hmm. her aunt and uncle who are on the Macross as well don't really have much control over her. You know, she does what she yeah. wants. Whereas Misa is the daughter of a very high-ranking UN military official. They've had very different upbringings, and because Misa is this guy's daughter, she thinks she has to behave and perform and, you know, expected to be seen. certain things expected of of her, Exactly. So, and that's why she has this steely front, you know, and this, you know, Mm. behaves the way she is, because that's how she thinks everyone expects her to, but that's not the person she really wants to be. Yeah, there's just a lot of pressure on her in general, isn't there? Yeah. Both of them become quite humble in the end because Minmay realizes at the end, you know, actually she wants to go and do her own thing. She realizes she's been a bit of a cow, you know, she's not treated, yeah. she's been quite, um, she's not dealt with um, Hikaru's feelings very well. She's actually treated him quite badly. And the same with, you know, they've had this practitious um, relationship, but, you know, it, it soothe, you know, it does soothe in the end and, and soften. And, mm-hmm. you know, she realizes that she's got a change for that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, and she becomes humble in a slightly different way for slightly different reasons. Yeah, she does, and she also uh, kind of, I think she comes to this point where she feels like you know her songs don't really belong to her, and the kind of you know, the sort of, you know she wants to do something a bit more for herself and be yeah. 
you know, she's had this kind of manufactured pop career. People yeah. have wrote songs where they've told her what to sing, yeah. how to dress, where to be. Yeah. And now she's like, I want to do all that for me. Sing me own songs with me own, with me own meanings behind them. And, you know, do everything off me own back, really. Yeah. And uh, she does very much talk about, like, her songs as if, you know, she yeah. wants to do everything more for herself. herself. And then just, group... for, just for her own reasons rather than being kind of pushed back and forth by people. Yeah, and then he grew again, kind of matures through it as well. And he, in the end, you know, he he has to make that kind of grown-up decision. Actually, do I want to be with her or do I want to be with her? Mm. And kind of stands up for himself really and makes the decision. Actually, I want to be with Misa, um, mm-hmm. and goes off and does that because, as we said, you know, he he treats both of them quite badly at times mm-hmm. in his own in his own way. So um, yeah. So um, yeah, so I think at the end the three characters end up in the in the right spot really, and I think it then do, closes yeah. the closes the series out really really well, and I think it comes to a really satisfactory, or the their story comes to a really satisfactory conclusion at the end of the series. It certainly does, yeah. I think you know everyone grows as a result of everything that's happened. You know all the kind of drama and the you know back and forth between them, yeah, all has a point in the end. Yeah, and it's kind of you know you feel quite validated by the end that. You've been put through all this drama for good reason, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because if it ended on some sort of really disappointing conclusion where yeah. you didn't choose somebody or you chose like Minmi, I would just be totally. Of, <laughs> I would have been like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So no. I well, think, yeah, I, I think, think you know he definitely chose the right person. <laughs> yeah, and really, that's a story that essentially runs through the heart of the Macross TV series. So, uh, and mm-hmm. a really good one it is too. So the other key plot device that runs through uh, Macross is the whole proto-culture part and the Zentradi's aversion to culture. Yeah. That kind of starts off quite early on. Uh, you know, once you've had the initial battles out the way, Exodol, who's the, as we've said, is the archivist of the Zentradi race, uh, you know, he starts talking about, you know, when they realise they're fighting my clones, humans, which they mm-hmm. refer to as my clones, he starts to talk about the culture um, yeah, you know, and that sort of starts to sow a few seeds with with what's going on there. That's right. He says, um, you know, the, there's Zentradi uh, records that say you should avoid the worlds with the Microns because no good's going to come of that. Yeah. So when the um, main characters get kidnapped and Britai and Exodol are kind of poking about with them, mm. and they start sort of asking questions because they have a trans, you know, they have a translation device, so they can yeah. start talking. Um, that old sci-fi staple. That old sci-fi <laughs> staple, yeah. The universal translator, yeah. <laughs> and at the end of that, they end up kissing, and that almighty kind of shock and sort of derision, and yeah, their gobsmacked men and women are together alongside each, each other, other. Yeah, they because in the Zentradi uh, culture, they don't they don't even um, live anywhere close to each other. They're separated, aren't they? They're separated yeah. into forces. Yeah, they're complete separate forces, and. The Zentradi have ended up as a race of people that are just geared up for combat. That's all they do is they Basically, fight. Basically, they're obsessed with warfare. In fact, um, doesn't uh, Exodol say something along the lines of, what, there's, there's a profession other than being a soldier? Like, yeah. what do you mean? There's no, the, what do you mean everyone's not a soldier? Yeah. You know, <laughs> He's like stunned sh- by it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's just real shock that, yes, that they do stuff other than fight and women and mm. women together. And then as it goes... Along, you know, Brito and Exodol and the uh, sort of chief commander, uh, they want to sort of find out a bit more about the culture. So then you get three soldiers who volunteer to uh, become my clones, and they end up sneaking aboard the Macross. 
Yeah, they take their mission very seriously at first. They do, yeah. <laughs> they're all about business and, you know, not slacking off, but soon they're going to discos with the bridge crew and, <laughs> you know, getting into uh, Minmay's music and experiencing culture. A bit of that's quite funny because um, they don't know anything about or understand women is that one of them dresses up in women's clothing, not realising yeah. that it's, <laughs> right, it's wrong, you know. <laughs> yeah, they and cry in these... and get derided and, uh, you know, humiliated and end up sort of fleeing and... Yeah, they wondering mean, what the hell's going on. Doesn't he say he thinks it's a combat uniform? This is a strange, this is a weird uh, <laughs> yeah, combat uniform. Right, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, people, you know, obviously looking at him, you know, because he's like some sort of cross-dresser or something, um, you know. <laughs> and they don't, they don't, obviously they're clueless to what they're doing wrong. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's quite a good visual gag for, for, you know, especially for that sort of era. And then obviously they meet the bridge bunnies, they go off, you know, they flirt with them, they go off to a disco and start drinking and all the rest of it and yeah they, they also seem to actually fall for three of the bridge crew as well don't they they do they do indeed yeah each one of them's obsessed with one of them <laughs> and it's quite interesting because they end up going back to the zentradi ship um mm -hmm. and they've got they take all this stuff with them and when they're doing their report they're showing them video recorders and um yeah. tape players and tvs That's right. and all sorts of other bits and pieces they, when, when they get all the objects out, they're tiny because obviously they've been like uh, back they've into been giants again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they've got like, a tiny television and like, it's all these tiny little artifacts. But they also have the uh, one of the most significant ones being the Minmir doll. Yes, absolutely. Because the Minmir doll sings My Boyfriend is a Pilot, which is one of the songs yeah. that appears throughout the series quite a lot. And uh, that seems to be the thing that really sets off the chain reaction of culture shock. Yeah, within Zentradi forces, and then and that's really when the Zentradi forces get exposed to culture, isn't it? Mm. And it then kind of then ripples. Um, it kind of contaminates them in it a way, does, doesn't basically, it? Yeah, it's kind of like a virus that spreads through everybody, and the more people see it and get to know about it and start to ask the spy trio about what they found. Yeah, they've heard a rumor in the ranks. You know, yeah. what's this stuff we've got? And that bit's quite interesting because it's the whole. You know, it's like this sort of secret society that goes on, isn't it? And it's all like everyone mm. wants to sneak off and listen to this song, yeah. you know. You, then you get people like um, Kamajin who who really are almost, you know, they resist it and resist it and resist it mm. until the very end. That's right, But, yeah. you know, and that bit's quite interesting because as the Zentradi get exposed to culture and, and then they lose the will to fight, and a lot mm. of them do stop fighting, you know. It's like, well, actually, yeah. we don't want to do this. We don't want to fight. Some of them, it means their end as well, doesn't it? It does, yeah, because, you know, as you say, like, the likes of Kamajin then start shooting them. And it's like, well, you're a traitor. Mm -hmm. you know, you're a traitor to the cause. And they they end up getting, you know, shot for almost like cowardice, deserting in the face of the enemy, which, yeah, you know, if you look at what happened during the two world wars that this planet faced, uh, you know, that's that's what happened. You know, people didn't want to fight. Absolutely. And they did. They they turned away. They did whatever they could. and. You know, they were sometimes they were you shot get for shot for very little. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they were shot there and then. You know, it was, um, mm -hmm. you know, they, they they were just shot on the spot for it. So, again, and I think that that bit of it's quite interesting. A bit like how we've talked about, especially with Zambot Three, sort of being so really so close to the end of the war. Um, yeah, a lot of those things I still I still think were probably relatively fresh. Yes, in, in definitely. The conscience, and especially of the people, the generation that were growing up after the war that were making this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there was still probably quite a few older people. I know 
people like um, Kawamori um, were quite young, but um, Ishiguru yeah. were quite older, and mm. so still probably had quite a lot of that legacy from. Yeah. Before. So I think I that. So, yeah. I think how the Zentradi story plays out. Um, it's, it's probably still been quite shaped by that. By shaped by that, absolutely. I yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it um, it is a series that's quite ahead of its time in a lot of ways for for me. I mean. Being somewhat of a sort of person who really enjoys older anime, same as same as yourself, like you know, you can't have watched everything, but at the same time, in the sort of sphere it populates and all the stuff that we've watched from that era, it certainly feels like head and shoulders above some of some of the other stuff in terms of its yeah. portrayal of things. So as that carries on, Britta and Exile, you know, they take on the culture, they agree a peace deal with the Macross mm. and then they join forces and end up turning against the rest of the Zentradi head fleet and end up defeating them. Uh, yeah. And then after that, you get the sort of integration of the Zentradi forces, which is quite interesting because that, again, in a post-war time environment, again, really significantly what happened after World War Two. Um, especially across Europe, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of how former enemies ended up integrating and it, sort yeah. of getting, in, getting along society, uh, sort of thing. Yeah, and getting along together, you know, how you rebuild those bridges where you've been fighting for mm-hmm. the last six years, you know, that thing's explored here and you get the some people that don't settle, especially like the Camogin, Yeah, you know, he never accepts it, does he? That's right, yeah, He's he wants to return to a, tight, to a time of warfare and he actively starts to plot and sort of... Uh, you know, hatch a few schemes to get his uh, to get them back to being in conflict again. But even with that, he's doing it. Uh, you know, Kamajin, uh, he still ends up with um, Lap Lamis. You know, mm-hmm. he ends up kissing her, saying, "Oh, well, maybe we'll do some culture before they end up." <laughs> you know, before <laughs> yeah. they end up in, a, in effectively a suicide run at the at the end of the series. But he, yeah, you that's know, right, even yeah. He, as much as he resists it, he still can't fight yeah. it. You know. Yeah, he's really de- he's really defiant. Yeah, and uh, really doesn't want to accept it, but like you say, in the end, he ends up being he ends up absorbing it, and he, yeah. he can't help. Just the same as everyone can't. But you do get these uh, Zentradi in the post-war episodes that are really restless, as you say, and you know they they just don't take to being civilians. You know they can't no. they can't adjust to a life without warfare, and so they end up kind of striking out and just you know going kind of rogue and like stealing military equipment and yeah. you know like uh, attacking the general populace and. Then Misa and uh, Hikaru and everyone else's job becomes kind of like keep it like peacekeepers on Earth, yeah, really. That's right, yeah. And that sort of takes up a you know a portion of the sort of plots of the uh, post-war episodes. The one thing I think with Macros, and I think I want to talk about it here rather than wrap it up, because seeing as we're talking about this, I think as much as it's quite a unique plot device, you know, this the whole effect of culture and the use of music, mm-hmm. which um, I think in certainly other Macross series or OVAs later on, I think is put to quite good use. Um, mm-hmm. So I think better here. As a plot device and the way it's used in this, you know, it's, I have to say, it's not something that really enthralls me, if mm-hmm. I'm honest. You know, if I look at, if I look at the sort of the, the plot stories of, if you look at the big four, yeah, Gundam, yeah. Botomes, Pat Labor, mm-hmm. and Macross, out of the sort of key plot devices that drives the story, for me, mm. as much as the the love story is really good, yeah, the whole music and culture bit, I have to say, it's it's not something that I personally I find particularly an exciting plot device. Mm. It leads to some interesting bits along the way, yeah, but it's not, I don't know, it's not something that I 
I don't it know, just perhaps that... doesn't grab you as much. It as just doesn't really plot grab device. me as I see it with other stuff at the time. I think it is quite a good plot device, but it does have its like limitations. Yeah. You know, they use uh, some of Min May's music a bit too much in the series. Yeah. There are some there are some things that feel a bit unnecessary, but overall, I like the fact that it examines like this how the culture shock affects the Zentradi in so much depth. Yeah. I really like the aspect that even like characters like Kamajin and Laplam Laplam is are changed by the end. Yeah. And and like how kind of like you get to like those characters who were even you know, even the quite like characters seem quite sort of unlikable at the beginning. Yeah. Um become quite sort of sympathetic by the end. So I really like it in that aspect. I think that it it does a lot to like you know, to, to explore the change of the characters. Yeah. Like I say, I think it as a device that leads to some interesting points, like I say, about mm-hmm. the trait, you know, uh, the forces turning on themselves and like mm-hmm. the integration sort of post-war bit. But overall, I think, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it just doesn't excite me, mm. if I'm honest. It's just, and yeah. I think the music bit, um, again, it's quite unique and I give it a lot of credit for doing that because if you look at a lot of other stuff, late 70s, early 80s, it wasn't really doing that. And I, yeah. you know, I like it for being a, a re- sort of reasonably unique device, but yeah, it just doesn't. I just don't find it an exciting or something just doesn't that grab you doesn't the really same grab way, me as as like some of the other sort of mecha stuff that was going on at the time mm-hmm. does. And I have to say, I know we talk about the sort of show, but uh, a bit later on when we talk about sort of some of the stuff in general. But Min, those songs, I think, are I don't know, they do great on me a little bit. Um, some of them do, yeah. Like some of them more than others. There's, yeah. uh, they're yeah, a little bit overplayed, I think. If I'm definitely. Honest. Well, that's what I was mentioning before. Yeah. Is that my boyfriend as a pilot particularly is just yeah. used like all the time, you know, because you get a, you get scenes where she's performing it, you get scenes yeah. where you know the the Zentradi you're playing with the doll and then yeah. it, it's singing the song. You get in the background on the radio and on TV yeah. and stuff, and there's just so much like use of the same songs over yeah. and over again uh, because of that. Uh, that it does sometimes they do great a little bit yeah yeah and and to be honest one of my biggest problems with the series as a whole and again and it kind of leads and it's led by two things it's led one by the extension the series got very early on and then Mm -hmm. how they use the the whole protoculture bit is i find it comes the series comes to a very natural end Mm -hmm. in episode 27 you have this amazing <laughs> battle. I think episode 27 is by far the best episode it in is the series. It is pretty cool, yeah. Um, it's a really, really good episode. It looks gorgeous. And it, it really does kind of wrap the story up. And it, you know, what we talked about, the love triangle, it really kind mm-hmm. of wraps the love story up by that point. Yeah. And then you have another Iron episode, which to me feel a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's one of my biggest problems with Macross, I think, as a, as a, as a structure, as a series. I see what you mean. I mean, the the thing for me is, I think there's still quite a few unanswered questions in episode 27. And I do actually like the post-war episodes quite a lot. I do think they could have been condensed, mind you. Yeah. I think if they'd maybe had um, a couple less episodes or yeah. they'd condensed some of the stuff about Kamajin's Rebellion a little bit, Yeah. it would have flowed a little bit better. Yeah, that's I do I'm... think there are a couple that are kind of like maybe slight non-episodes. But I do think that there was a lot of stuff still to come after episode 27, which I'm glad did. And also the the stuff with Laplamese and uh, Camden is really good. And I love that uh, that scene towards the end where everyone takes up the roles again on the bridge. Yeah. And basically ends up, you know, going back to all the jobs they did, and it like yeah, and that yeah. takes off the final time. 
and uh, and global sort of rallies everyone. I think that scene is brilliant. Yeah, and and don't get me wrong, I agree. You know, some of the wrap up, but like I say, episode mm-hmm. twenty seven comes to what feels like such a natural end to the series. I remember the first time I watched that, I kind of felt that way. And mm-hmm. watching it again, I, I um, my opinion, you know, definitely hasn't changed in that respect. I can see where you're coming from totally. Yeah. If it didn't kind of resolve so much in episode 27, because um, mm-hmm. that would have been where the natural end of the series would have been originally when they yeah. originally wrote it. And exactly. I think they yeah. needed to take a bit more, because when Hikaru he and Misa go off arm in arm, you know, the Zentradi are kind of defeated mm-hmm. and everything, it just closes so many neat, things neat. off in that episode. Then it kind That's of, right. then you have a two year gap in the story and then it picks it up again. And, that, and it opens up the sort of love triangle thing again. Yeah. Yeah, and sort of like, you know, resets the relationship effectively. It does. I guess. It kind of resets the story again. And that mm. and the post war bit feels I don't know, it feels too much of a bolt on to me to mm. the to the first bit of the story. I can, I can see that. I mean I think that uh, there is definitely uh, aspects of it, like I say, like the fact that the relationship status is kind of relet reset and you know, you you get uh, more conflict between Zentradi yeah. and humans and stuff. But I think that at the same token, it's a double-edged sword because some of the stuff in that post-war section I really love. Yeah. And I and I and I love those scenes, and I I kind of can't imagine it without those scenes in a certain way. But maybe they could have been repurposed. Yeah. And, and I put agree. elsewhere. In episode 27, be the still be the end, but you know those, that stuff could have come beforehand. Yeah, because I think still some of the bit of sort of he crew growing up and there was still a little bit more to resolve with min may i think you know and some of those bits yeah. the bit we've talked about where um he crew sort of dumps misa for the day and goes off with min may and then yeah. comes back and gets caught out by misa uh mm-hmm. you know that's a really good bit and, and as we just said the the, the bit with Kamajin and lap lam is mm-hmm. is a good you know some of those bits but i think they needed to be two or three episodes and integrated into episode 27 yeah better. I think it. Yeah. I think it's really a 30, 31 episode series, mm-hmm. not a 36 while, episode. While we're on the subject of episodes, we should talk about those two useless uh, episodes that they added. Yeah. <laughs> there's a terrible filler episode, which yeah. is a recap. And then there's also one that repurposes uh, existing footage in, in a kind of nightmare. Yeah. Uh, because there's an episode where Hikaru is, uh, is comatose, or, or, you know, at least unconscious, and he's uh, he's kind of having this nightmare, and he reuses stuff you've already seen with a little yeah. bit of new footage, but it does it so badly. It does. It really. <laughs> it does. And they're not too far apart those episodes as well. No, they're not. They're about like three or four episodes, episodes apart. apart. Yeah, and it, and again, it really kind of spoils the flow of the flow of the series. And you can always get this thing where the recap allows them to catch up. You know, you always hear of production horror stories with some of these series and it still happens today you know there's quite a few yeah. series that have aired re- very recently that have had production nightmares um so mm-hmm. you can kind of understand why they do them but they tend to be just yeah they just kind of so they badly done and they just detract series. from the series yeah because like Vifum's a good one like that that's got two recap episodes almost back to back um yeah mm-hmm. it just destroys the the flow of what up to that point is a very very good story yeah. you know so with the filler episodes with the sort of recap episodes you can always miss those out yeah the um the phantasm episode which is the sort of nightmare one that we discussed is just such a rubbish addition of the series yeah. it really is and i think next time i rewatch the series i'm just going to skip those both because you still get a scene of you still get a scene of hikari waking up in hospital and the kind of explanation of what happened to him so it's not really important to <laughs> watch those anyway <laughs> 
No, and it's like it's and like I say, if it's a straight recap episode, it's like it's fine. But when it tries to tell the story and just then does it badly, it's it's a re- it's a real shame. And that is a well, that one, the like I say, the Phantasm one, is a real low point in the series, I think. Hmm. Definitely, yeah. Hikaru, for the most part, I think is quite a likable character. He does care about people. And he forms bonds with people quite easily. He wants to protect those he cares about, but he can be a little bit weak-willed at times. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's a very young character, isn't he? And mm-hmm. it's quite interesting how you see a load of immaturity when he starts. Um, Definitely, you yeah. Know, I think he's easily led. He's very know. easily led, yeah. I mean, he joins the military pretty much on a whim because of Minmay, really. Yeah. Um, and spends a lot of time running after her when he really should realise what he's got with Misa. Yeah. Exactly. As, we, as we've talked about, yeah. You know, I think he's easily, um, you know, influenced by the likes of Roy. Um, Min May has him wrapped around her little finger, and he, mm-hmm. he runs off all sort, you know, doing all sorts of stuff when he shouldn't because of her. Um, yeah. But like you say, he does really care about people, um, mm-hmm. and especially like his squadron and his, like you know, yeah, everyone on board the Macross, maybe his family, everyone really. And he does go out of his way, you know, to get. Min May her present to take her back to her family, so you know yeah. he's got a really kind heart, and he and as you say, he really wants to do the right by people and do the right thing That's for right. people and help them out. You know, he never really says no to anyone, does he? That's right. Yeah, I mean he he sometimes doesn't think for himself very much. Sometimes he'll like just he kind of has like an idiot reaction to certain things. Yes, like when yeah. they talk about letting the Zentradi on the ship and letting them sort of live among them, he's he kind of says no outright, but then he. Just hasn't really thought about it very much, has he? Just no. because he's been fighting them, he's like, well, well, they're they're the enemy, and I don't think we should do that. But then when Misa starts to talk about, you know, why she thinks they, they should let them stay, he kind of changes his mind pretty pretty soon. And that yeah. happens a couple of times through the series. He yeah. does seem very weak-willed in that way. Yeah, yeah. He gets his mind to he gets turned around and gets his mind changed by somebody's argument. Same when Max um, comes to talk to him about getting married as well. Yeah. He thinks it's a terrible idea, but then he's like, oh, actually, yeah, Global's got this idea about turning, you know, like sort of trying to accept them and integrate the culture. Maybe that could be like a good uh, good idea. Yeah. Uh, he just, like, you know, it's two seconds back, he's changed his mind. <laughs> you know, and some of that immaturity comes off in his cockiness as well, especially how he talks to Misa early on. Mm-hmm. You know, he calls her an old lady and he's always back chatting her. Um, yeah, there's also a really sexist bit where he says something along the lines of, you know, women look much better when they're like sort of, what does he say, when they're cooking or doing, yeah, or, right. like, make, or being a homemaker or something? Yeah. And you're like, oh my god, Hikaru. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much a sign of its time, I think, isn't it? Yeah, you know, very so, much so, uh... yeah. Absolutely. Um, and as for uh, Roy, I feel like uh, in some ways you barely got to know Roy. No. You know? And, uh, you know, he's a character, again, I think you kind of need, you kind of need a character like him. And again, he's very much a character who is the sign, you know, a very much character. But I think you need, within that war, fighter pilot type thing, you need that cocky. Yeah, sort the of, confident. Yeah. Sort of cocksure kind yeah. of uh, guy, yeah. I mean, he is shown in flashback, however, to have a quite a vulnerable side, which is quite interesting. Yeah. There is the episode where Claudia tells Misa about their relationship. Yeah. I really like his interactions with Hikaru as well, because obviously they have some great moments of kind yeah. of kind of ribbing each other and everything. Yeah. And that's great. That works really well in the course yeah. of the series, I think. 
But it's interesting that episode that I mentioned with Claudia because it, you do see a different side to him. Yes. You, you really do. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, and I like the way, you know, he turns up with a car full of girls to their, mm. to his date. But, you know, it's all, he kind of lets on that it's all a sort of facade and yeah. he's just kind of doing it to impress her. And that's the, he's living up to his reputation. Yeah, there's a lot thing, of it's bravado, know. isn't it? Yeah, exactly, he has, bravado. he has like a persona. Yeah. Really, where he kind of doesn't want like to sort of uh, let the facade slip in front of his sort of squad mates and the people who look up to him. Yeah. Because there is that sort of laddish kind of military culture, I guess. Yeah, and even when you know when he dies and he knows he's dying, he still kind of wants to do it. You know, he goes back to Claudia um, and doesn't let on. You know, and I think that at the end of the day, I think ultimately he does really again for all his womanizing ways and the way he's always looking up other women. Ultimately, his true love is Claudia. Yeah, you know, and he's, it really is. Yeah, and he's really true to her at the end of the day. That's right, right up to the very end. That's right, and he, you know, the, that scene is is wonderfully done. Um, Roy's death uh, yeah. because of the fact that you see the maintenance crew going to the Valkyrie to check it, and you see one of them look in the cockpit, and he's shocked, isn't he? Yeah. And then it cuts to Roy sitting with Claudia sipping some wine, and she's like, "Oh, have you fallen asleep already?" Yeah. And goes over and checks him, and then turns him over and finds a massive wound in his back yeah. and it's quite shocking because the first time i saw it, i just did not expect that at all it was no it's such an unusual character death it really is the fact that he kind of gets up out of his plane and just puts a brave face on it yeah it is yeah it's a very unusual it's kind death. of sad i mean do you do you feel his death comes a bit early in the series yeah i do yeah because like i said i think we we in some ways we barely get a norm and i think the production staff probably realized that and I think that's why they did that episode with Claudia and uh, Roy's relationship and the flashback where she's telling Misa about what they were like together and when they first met and everything. Because I think that's that's there to kind of, you know, expand his character a little bit. Yeah. Because, I, again, I don't know whether it's one of those things, as we've just discussed in sort of the previous section, about where it ends in 27 and then you have the extension mm. on there. You know, and I, I wonder if the within the original writing, when it was a... 27 episode tv series his death was just past halfway which yeah within that would have been sort of towards the two-thirds point of the story which at that point probably felt like the right time to die but within a 36 episode cause i think he dies in episode 19 or something like that you know it's kind of just about the halfway point of the series so mm. there's still an awful lot that happens after his death which in the context of the, you know the whole plot line and the whole story of Macross. It always felt a little bit early, I think. Yeah, uh, I, th I think the anime go liner notes mentioned that they had always planned to have that uh, flashback episode with with the story of their relationship, but I, I don't know whether it was shifted to a different place. Maybe. Yeah. Can't remember exactly what it was said about it, but it did say that it was planned from the beginning, but it was uh, it must have been repurposed and put somewhere else, I guess. Yeah. Because it kind of makes. It does kind of where it does. You have the battle, and then it kind of makes sense in the post-war bit to to have that scene. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, especially with Claudia trying to steer Misa in the right direction, isn't she? Really? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, at that point, she kind of won't admit her feelings. She's done lots of subtle things, like you know, giving the photo book and that, but she hasn't come out and said it at that point. Yeah. And she's trying to get her on the right path, I guess. Absolutely. And then that probably leads us into Claudia. She's the right foil to Misa, I think. Yeah. 
Definitely. Uh, you know, I think she, because, you know, she's always going on about being, you know, need to be a bit more ladylike and, you know, yeah. she laughs, she laughs at Misa's sort of stance and, you know, her sort of single-mindedness. Stoic, yeah, was, yeah, exactly. She's like one of the most carefree people on the Macross, really, isn't she? She is. You know, she, at least until Roy's death, bless her. But uh, that's not to say she doesn't take her duty seriously. I mean, she takes she takes her role very seriously. But they have such a good friendship uh, that she does like tease her a little about you know the fact that she isn't very sort of feminine in some ways. Yeah. Um, but she does seem a little bit wiser than the rest of the girls, mm. doesn't she? Seems that little bit. It's kind of hard to like gauge her age actually. But yeah, she does seem a little bit wiser than the rest of them. Like she seems to have lived a little bit more. Yeah. I agree. I think because she's obviously been in a reasonably long-term relationship with Roy, mm-hmm. um, and she's the only one out of Misa and the rest of the bridge crew to have a relationship. Um, and I always think she's a bit. She's the oldest of those five. I mean, I always yeah. take that. that. I thought so as well. I thought so as well. That's the impression that you get. I think just because she she does come off as if she's lived a bit more life and has yeah you know experienced a bit more yeah. Yeah, she's got a bit more life experience and a bit. She's a bit more worldly wise, isn't she? Yeah, um, so that's exactly the phrase I was looking for. Yeah, and Definitely. I imagine um, living with Roy helps with that as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get some uh, unique perspective on things, shall we say? <laughs> but yeah, she's um, she's a really good character. And I think that that um, that flashback episode about the relationship deepens both of their mm. characters, but deepens both Claudia's character and Roy's character as well. Um, and that's uh, I'm glad that they put that in, even though it was kind of you know after after Roy passes on. My final comment on uh, Claudia really is I like the fact that she never gives up on Misa either. She doesn't. No. You know, right up she to the very like end, she's always you know <laughs> with the tea and all the rest of it. She's always just giving them that helping hand, and I I really really like that. I think that's really really good sort of portrayal of her character. I think everyone's got a friend like that, haven't they? You know, somebody who just doesn't give up on you no matter what. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all need we all need a Claudia. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Misa is definitely um, Misa Hayase is definitely one of the most interesting characters in the series for me. Uh, definitely one of my favourites. Um, I think the scene that most effortlessly sums her up is the scene where Hikaru and her are trapped together uh, during the Macross's transformation. Yeah. She makes this comment about being lonely sometimes, and and Hikaru sort of like laughs at her and says, "I thought you, I never thought you'd admit to that. <laughs> I, I never thought you'd admit to being a lonely person." And she she sort of says, "Well, excuse me, you know, yeah. everyone gets lonely." And when she snaps, he says, "Oh, that's the captain I know." Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and he she sort of says in a small voice, "So is the one you just heard, you know? It's why can't I be both?" And it kind of under, underlines the sensitive side of her that yeah. lies beneath the surface. And there's definitely. So clearly, two sides to Misa's character. She so wants to live up to her father and be the perfect military daughter, mm-hmm. um, you know, and be the the high flying sort of perfect soldier, always calm and collected and doing the right thing in battle. Yeah. You know, never cracks under pressure. You know, never lets the pressure and stress show on her. But ultimately, like everyone else, she just wants to be loved. Yeah, you know, and she gets very jealous of the people around her that have those relationships. Yeah, you know, she's mm-hmm. jealous of Claudia. She gets jealous of um, Max and Millia's yeah, relationship. Yeah. You know, all those things. You know, and she's kind of ultimately desperately. You know, she had that love, 
and you know, he Ryber. died Ryber, that's it. And you know, he, you know, ended up dying on Mars and, and she never quite got over it. So and she builds that wall up around um yeah, herself she does, yeah. after that. Um, you know, and she throws herself into a military career and it takes her a long as much as she desperately wants to be loved, you know, it takes her a long time for, for that wall to sort of be broken down. Yeah, she kind of buries herself in her work almost, I she guess. She does, and, exactly, yeah. And kind of tries to just put a brave face on things in, in some ways. Yeah, and, and it takes a long, long time. And that's why, again, I think why the character writing is so good is that, you know, it, it does take a while. She keeps giving these glimpses of chinks in the armour and, mm -hmm. you know, eventually she kind of... And she has to overcome herself, I think, Oh, she a, does, a yeah. Lot, doesn't she? Her, you know, her she biggest... has quite a, quite a sort of strong character journey, doesn't she, throughout yeah. the series, same as Hikaru does. Um, and whereas sort of Min Mei kind of grows up at the end, you see Hikaru mature really as he, you know, sort of battles and he sort of understands the, how relationship works better. And then that for Misa, it's the other way. You know, again, she's a bit older than the other two. And mm -hmm. she's got she's got this wall in front of her after Ryber and and you know she has to break that down and it's they kind of all meet in the middle don't they? They do yeah. They you all know. do a lot of growing the three of them. Yeah. And that's what I quite like. You know what rounds out those stories very well. I really like Misa for. Uh, Same here. Yeah, she's a great know. character. She's a really really good character. Yeah. Absolutely. So we should talk a little bit about Minmi as well. She's a very bubbly, energetic, and friendly character. But she's also quite young, so she can be a little bit dense to the feelings of people. Yeah. <laughs> and also not really un quite understand the gravity of the situation regarding the war and things like that. You know, yeah. she's, she's a little bit slow on the take with that sort of stuff, isn't she? She doesn't quite appreciate the gravity of the situation a lot of the time. Yeah, and I think she's very young, as we've talked uh, about previously. You know, she turned 16 through the series, so she's very, mm. very young. She's very sheltered. She's yeah. not really understand the world relationships she's very idealized um mm -hmm. you know and i think that really sort of plays and when she become or wins um miss macross and gets thrown into this world and everyone's demanding on her i think that you know how she kind of buckles on that and yeah she's, she's, she's sort not of her own pressure, doesn't she yeah and she's not her own person anymore um yeah she hates like the fact that her life's been kind of scheduled and she's going to you know premieres and this and that and she's all over the place like you know with all the time being accounted for by a manager even today you see stuff about pop stars or celebrities whose lives are kind of micromanaged um and i think you know i'm not really into idol culture but you know what bits i read on stories on a and n you see some of the headlines that that seems yeah. to be very much a way that you know these the idol culture is in you know they are and if you look mm. at like perfect blue which you know talks a lot about the film perfect blue that talks a lot about idol culture and and how mm. their their lives are micromanaged i think that's a really yeah. the portrayal even and again back from you know 1982 i think it's a really good portrayal of of that kind of life um an idol's it life is. you know i yeah. think it's really really good yeah i mean there's that scene where she just comes into like uh Hikari's room in the in the hospital and she just kind of collapses on the bed and just goes to sleep doesn't she yeah yeah she's so exhausted with the, with the schedule She's also um, a sort of symbol of hope yeah. for everyone on the Macross as well. A symbol of hope to the people of Earth and all the civilians aboard the Macross. There's that great scene in episode 20 where Global has to give everyone the awful news that the Macross has been ordered to leave the Earth. Yeah. And um, he gives this really passionate speech about his belief that one day they're going to return to the Earth. 
Uh, but you can tell that the poor guy's heart is breaking. Yeah. And he just starts to go to pieces, and she steps in at that point to deliver this message of like hope, and she sings this song. Yeah. And that's exactly what's good about Min May's character yeah. as well. She might not be, you know, appreciating absolutely everything that's going on. She knows when people are in, people are upset, and she can sort of step in and you know do something to like take poor globals the pressure yeah. off and. Yeah. And uh, I think that is a really good thing because that shows that she is quite. She can be selfish at times, but you know she really does come through for yeah. for the sort of people of Earth who everyone's really like you know down at that point. I mean, how could they not be? And then she sort of steps in and delivers this kind of message of hope, and it's a nice kind of scene. It's quite it's quite cool. Yeah, and I think ultimately at the end, you know, she as they all do that final bit of growing up, and she realised that she's been a bit of a brat. And she's not been very nice and she's kind of treated. And as we said previously, she has that kind of reconciliation with Misa. And then mm-hmm. she realises that actually she's got to go and do her own thing and find mm-hmm. her own life. Uh, you know, that, yeah, and I, I think that rounds... singing her own songs. And... Exactly. And that rounds her her story and her, you know, her character development off really well, I think. Definitely. I mean, because obviously she wants to be accepted by... Um... By like uh, Misa and Hikaru is a, is a friend, and even ends up volunteering to be to go aboard their spacecraft. And, yeah. You know when the when uh, Misa gets selected for a mission, she says, "I well, I'll fly, you know, with you, and I'll sing on your ship." And she accepts that, and she's quite happy about it, Misa, at the end. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's yeah, I think that's a really good close to 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 that storyline. Having talked about Global, I think probably move mm-hmm. on to him next, and yeah, you know, I. He he's your typical cap anime bridge captain, isn't he? I think you've seen yeah. him. I, you've seen him even in 1982 through Yamato, through Gundam. Mm. I, yeah, he's quite a familiar story, familiar type yeah. of character, isn't he? You always sort of drawn with the uh, the one eye sort of like yeah. shadowed by the yeah. side, one eye looking really stoic. Yeah, and uh, they could have just made him the stern authority figure and made him very one dimensional, though. But I love the fact he's really humanized. Yeah, and you mentioned like the humorous moments in the in the first episode, but also very dramatic ones like the big yeah. speech uh, that I mentioned before when the Macross is exiled from Earth. Yeah, that is just a brilliant scene that shows just how much he cares about everybody yeah. and how he isn't just this kind of you know guy who's barking orders at people. And he's used really well throughout the series. He is. I agree with that. I think he is used to very good effect at, at sort of critical, especially in the war storyline. I think mm-hmm. he used yeah. he's used it very very to good effect at moving crucial bits of that story along. Definitely. A little bit less so in the post-war stuff, but he has an amazing scene in, in that final battle against Lablamis and Kamajin, where they go back aboard the bridge again, which I've, I mentioned previously. That's, that's a really cool scene, that one. Where he kind of finally becomes the captain again. <laughs> we should also uh, talk about Kaifun. Um, Kaifun, unfortunately, I find completely insufferable. Oh, he is, isn't he? He is, he is the... <laughs> He is the worst character. I mean, he is just dislikable <laughs> all the way through, he, isn't he? He um, really is. I mean, I, I think we've all met a Kaifun before. Yeah, um, I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody who just believes his way of doing and seeing things yeah. is absolutely 100% correct. And uh, he believes he's right no matter what, and he's unable to see anyone else's point of view, basically. Yeah. I mean, he's just a dick all <laughs> the really way through, is. isn't he? He is. Um, <laughs> he is. You kind of need that character, don't you? Yeah, you need you need him to offset. You need he's he's the good um, character for everyone else to sort of react off and yeah, drive exactly, everyone yeah. else's story. So 
Um, yeah. As much as he wound me up every time he was on screen, but you know he was essential to the story, really, wasn't he? Yeah, he is. I mean, he's he's only war sentiment. Yeah. And if approached in a different way, it could be admirable. But he just comes off as a self-righteous a-hole, really, yeah, doesn't he? It's he like, does, yeah. For one thing, he's on a military ship. It's like the greatest defence for the Earth. He just goes around saying whatever he wants to soldiers about how they're all... <laughs> he just doesn't have any regard for anyone, basically. Yeah. Uh, particularly how soldiers feel. Um, and his views are so simplistic. You know, we, we talked about this a little bit with Zambo 3. But he just seems to think that both sides can just stop fighting and everything's going to be fine. It's going yeah, to solve it. Yeah. Things are really so simple. Yeah, I know. And he just, again, he kind of, and he does see it in such black and white terms. And um, yeah, I think in some ways I, I did find him a little bit overused um, mm. through the series. I think he was an annoying, dislikable character. And as I said, he's essential to the story, but I'd like to have seen a bit less of him through mm, the series yeah. really I agree yeah I agree definitely um, your least favourite character without a doubt <laughs> <laughs> in fact I was thinking before recording I need to censor myself when talking about him because we are a family friendly podcast <laughs> yeah that's right yeah <laughs> yes definitely have to show some restraint in talking about Kaifen yeah <laughs> and the fact that even Misa falls for him and it's like you're like why are you such a doofus why are you why, yeah, do you, exactly, why yeah. do you get, you know, I know she reminds him of Robert, but um, yeah, it's really hard to see that, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Um, Britta is a pretty cool character, actually. Um, he gets a lot more screen time than his superior Bodolza does. He's intelligent, he's resourceful, like he's handy in a fight, which mm. is, we get to see that when he takes on Hikaru's bat ride in, in a fight. Yeah. We kind of have a wrestling match that's just quite humorous. <laughs> He's a great uh, but he's character. he's an interesting character, and he, and he you know when he comes over to the uh, side of the humans, um, I really like that stuff with him yeah. where he's kind of like uh, where he's allied with the Macross. I think we get one of the great things about the post-war episodes is seeing him in his new role. Yeah, I really like that. But yeah, he's 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 a really interesting character in general. It's just uh, yeah, I I like him. He's, he reminds me of again if you look back through the history of of warfare, you get you get these visionary leaders um who can often see the bigger picture and they can see beyond the mm. next battle or then you know they can see several moves ahead um yeah and britai is one of those characters and you know he's measured he like i say he can he can fight you know he can do all that stuff um yeah mm-hmm. and he's a really really good he gets angry when he when he needs to get angry and um but he's reserved or measured when he needs to be um, yeah, he, he is one of my favourite characters through the, you know, he's a, yeah. one of the great military strategists in anime, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, and he and he's, you know, he doesn't always agree and see eye to eye with Bodolza. No. You know, when he he's not afraid to kind of like show his kind of dissent and you know, the, you know, he, he sort of re- there's times he kind of resents some of his decisions a little bit and he's, you know, he's put out a little bit by uh, by um, his superior at times. Yeah. And there's some good scenes with, with the kind of chain of command in that series, yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then his right-hand man, Exodol, I think is quite, mm. you know, I think he plays the good sort of, uh, I say, right-hand man to um, mm-hmm. to Britai, really. And, you know, as That's the archivist. Exactly what I've got. Yeah. yeah, I've got that written down. Yeah, <laughs> Britai's right-hand man. He's the, I mean, we've mentioned he's the official archivist and he, he records every bit of information that's pertinent to the Zentradi and, you know, he has all these like battle records and things, and obviously World warns Britai quite early on of the potentially devastating effects of, of protoculture. But he has um, a really good relationship with Britai, and he's really respectful of him. 
they also have some really funny scenes in the series. Yeah, like yeah. I think some of the best comedy scenes come from yeah. Exodol's reaction to Earth culture. Yeah. And uh, he also becomes a very useful ally in the post war episodes as well. Yeah. There's that there's that great scene where he's um he's in a sort of limo with uh, yeah, that's what some I was of the Earth talk officials. About. Yeah. <laughs> and he sees the he sees the sort of uh, softcore yeah. film uh, yeah. poster. Yeah. And he has rather an extreme reaction to it. <laughs> and um the, the official and he says and uh, Exodol's trying to asking him to explain it and he's just trying he's just like make some excuses to not explain it. It's absolutely brilliant. He says it's there. a military secret. Yeah. That's... <laughs> and then they see then they see some lingerie in another shop window, he's like yeah. <clears throat> another military secret. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that bit is really, really good. It's really, I really like that bit. And Exodol is like the perfect character to uh to play you know, to play that kind of confusion and yeah, because he's a straight man, isn't he? Really, he, like he's a straight man. Yeah, yeah. It's so like when he delivers comedy, it's really funny because yeah. you've seen him in this really serious role. Yeah. There's also the scene where he imitates uh, Minmay singing "My Boyfriend Is a Pilot." He's doing <laughs> little swings side yeah. to side. <laughs> that is excellent as well. Yeah, he's... and it just it just works in the same way because because of his previous sort of stoicness. Yeah, that's right. He's yeah. very serious. and he is so and he is so serious. Yeah, and um and. And he's a great, and again, they're a great double act, aren't they? Really, as as a pair of characters, mm-hmm. Britai and Exodol, and and what they both bring to the story, um, mm-hmm. differently, is is really really good, because um, they're kind of key to that switch, you know, the whole switch from being enemies to being allies with the Macross. So um, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, they're they're really really good. Um, beyond that, Maximilia, mm-hmm. I think you know. They're quite interesting. The, the the two sort of unsung suit, uh, ace pilots who mm-hmm. uh, see an affinity with each other. Yeah, I mean, Milia's sort of really full of pride, isn't she? And yeah. she hates the idea of being bested in combat. Yeah. Which leads to her like actively seeking out the ace pilot of the Macross Max, and um, she becomes a Myclone so she can meet him and have yeah. a kind of one on fight. But things don't quite go according to no. how she thinks. <laughs> And it's the yeah, and it's like um, and it's you know it's the complete opposite to um, opposite to track, isn't it? It's they are so alike really um, mm. that they're kind of made for each other, aren't they? Yeah, and when they're right, playing yeah. against each other in the arcade, um, that's a great scene, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah, there's there's kind of like a sort of a Batroid uh, like battle game, isn't there? Yeah. It's kind of got like sort of vector type graphics and that, <laughs> and they're uh, they sort of battling against each other and that. Leads to them meeting again uh, on on what Max thinks is a date, and turns into a knife fight, <laughs> <laughs> which is a completely crazy scene. But it, but thankfully that doesn't go uh, too far in the end of realizing the feelings for each other. <laughs> but they do uh, they have a lot of um, have a lot of like humor regarding the fact that she's not quite grasping Earth culture yet. Yeah, yeah. You know she has that kind of kitchen problem where she confuses the. Pan in the kettle and like destroys the kitchen and stuff. <laughs> well, <that laughs> and she happens. also doesn't realise it's it's not very acceptable to throw your baby daughter through the area. Yeah, either. that's right. And I, and I think that yeah, <laughs> her adapting to Earth culture is is really good. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's a really really good good part of her her character. And I think she's the right character again, kind of showing how how cultures adapt and. Mm-hmm. You know, she's a fish out of water and and everything, and uh, yeah, she's got a yeah. really good good part in that. I don't actually feel like until Max meets Milia that they really give him a great deal of personality. You know, a lot of his character comes from when they meet. 
Yes. You know, you, you get a lot more about his character when there is the meeting between the two of them. And we don't get a great deal of insight into his character, apart from the fact that he's like an ace pilot and, he's, and he shows a hell of a lot of determination yeah, in trying to get yeah. to go on a date with him. <laughs> but um, there's also a couple of scenes where he comes off as a little bit creepy in the early portion of yeah, the series as well. Yes, yeah, you're um, right. Yeah. He, says something, he says something about Min Mate at one point, doesn't he? She's something like she's small and compact, but she's got the whole package. Yeah. <laughs> and then he, he also, like, uh, when he's talking about how attracted he is to Millie, he also estimates a bus size with a disturbing level of enthusiasm mm. <laughs> yeah that's very true <laughs> but uh what i mean once you do warm to him a little bit more when um the stuff with sort of Millie happens he becomes a bit more of a better character um but i do feel he's a bit one-dimensional at the beginning and we get a bit more yeah you know sort of depth to him when Amelia uh, comes along really so um i guess we can also talk about laplin is in Camogen as a pair can't we really yeah we can so yeah, Laplum is another female Zemtradi and um, Milia's superior prior to her defecting to the Macros. Her and Milia seem to have quite a good relationship and friendship and she's very like headstrong and confident, isn't yeah. she? But she's not obnoxiously so. No, she's not. And she's not like um, Kamajin, is she? I mean, Kamajin is, is another sort of love-to-hate character. Yeah. You know, he's kind of rude, he's obnoxious, he's arrogant, he's always disobeying orders... Mm-hmm. Um, he goes and does what he wants, but he is quite a thorn in her side originally. Yeah, because he keeps on disobeying orders and interfering with the operations, and she's constantly annoyed by him. Yeah, the beginning, and she's always trying to get him sort of brought, uh, you know, sort of like court martial type thing, isn't she? You know, yeah. she's always like, well, he can't carry on being like this, you know, and she's always saying that she'll sort of get him, but um, mm. but ended up they becoming sort of unlikely allies, don't they? That's right, yeah. Because um, they, they have a similar sort of philosophy, I guess, about you know wanting to go back to the way things were yes, by the post war Exactly. It's quite interesting because they both um, generate a lot of loyalty in the people that mm. um, serve them. You know, they're both that kind of... Uh, you know, they're probably quite straightforward people. This is their beliefs mm-hmm. and, you know, this is what they want to do and they don't deviate from that. So, you know, the, the people... Yeah their subordinates probably look up to that um, fact that they always Absolutely. know where they stand with them. And I think she thinks that she's manipulating Kamajin at the beginning with a sex appeal. Yeah. But then she actually starts to develop feelings for him. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that they both become uh, more sympathetic characters by the end because of their growing feelings for each other. Yeah. And there is that really funny scene where they're talking about uh, culture as a euphemism yeah. for like yeah. intimacy. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, well, maybe we'll do some culture. And then he, there's a scene where where she where uh, he grabs her and kisses her in, in front of Min Mei, isn't there? Yeah. And, uh, and then something interrupts them and Laplamiz is like, just when the culture was getting good. Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes feel, you know, um, the end of their story where they, where especially, you know, they kind of, because I always kind of feel it's like, ultimately they're succumbing to the culture and there's nothing they can do about it. You know, that's, mm-hmm. they're going to end up being what they don't want to be. So it's probably best that they go out in a blaze of glory, still yeah. true to themselves, so to speak, before they become culturized. Yeah, kind of infected by the yeah. culture, like as we mentioned before. Um, it's it's interesting the fact that you know they do seem to have like they do seem to be doomed at the end. They do seem to be yeah. like heading towards the demise, but it doesn't actively tell you one way or the other. I, would, I think that most people would assume that they that they have died, but yeah. uh, it doesn't actually really. 
elaborate on that. You don't see a scene where you no, realise I, mean, like, I always take it as that they've yeah. ended up dying. You know, like I say, it was a bit of a suicide manoeuvre at the end, wasn't it? And yeah, the, see, the see... conversation is so intimate towards the end with them holding hands and stuff. Yeah. I think that it is supposed to signify it's like it's the end, you know. Um, and like I say, I think it it's like well they'll die still Zentradi warriors, mm-hmm. not fully uh, immersed in human immersed culture. Immersed in human culture, yeah, yeah. So I think that's a good round out to their story as well. Definitely. So we're starting to look at some of the more general aspects of the the Macross TV series. Uh, first looking at the Mecha, uh, I think mm-hmm. the obvious one is to start with the Valkyrie, which is kind of, you know, the key iconic yeah. Mecha design from, from Macross. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, um, the Batroid is just instantly recognisable, the, the, and the jet as well, you know, like the actual yeah. Valkyrie fighter itself, both modes are equally as kind of recognised in fandom. Even if you haven't seen Macross, you'll probably know yeah. uh, what they look like, you know. Um, I really like the uh, the type of um, Valkyrie that has the sort of triangle style visor. I really like the yeah. head on that one. I think that one looks much cooler than the mass production type, which has the sort of square yes, visor. Yeah. yeah, I think it's an interesting quite... aspect of the. Sorry. Uh, go on. An interesting aspect of the uh, Valkyrie's like head is when I first watched the series, I didn't realise that the guns on the head were actually guns. I thought they were antennae. Yes. Because it doesn't actually show you until much later in the series them fire. Yeah. Because there's that scene where uh, where um, Hikaru gets uh, Misa out of the uh, building, he shoots the window out. Yeah. With the uh, with the sort of gun ears. Um, I, that's what I always think of them of as like both guns and ears. <laughs> well, you see, I always thought of them as antennae, and I think that's a legacy of Jetfire from the Transformer mm. bit. Because I always saw them on Jetfire as antennae. And it wasn't until then that point in Macross that they ended up being guns that realised they were guns. Yeah. You know, and I think that, um, you know, with us not having the Robotech connection, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, you know, our introduction to the Valkyrie was Jetfire. So, uh, yeah, I think it's quite... And the, also, the other thing as well is, like you say, it's very iconic. And as, as Jetfire, you don't really get... I think the toy... You could effectively put it in the go walk mode, but you know it's not yeah. a, a mode that's used in Transformers. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's quite again. I think given where um, Macross was within the real robot era, I think that having the three modes, you know, having the halfway point between mm-hmm. the robot and the fighter, I think it's really cool. I think it's a really unique um, sort yeah. of use on it. It's used quite well in certain scenes as well, like the scene yeah. where Minmis in free fall and she gets uh, caught by Hikaru. Um, you know, he, he goes to sort of like catch her as she's fallen. And um, the, then and it's also in Gawak mode in the scene where you first see the Zentradi and he guns it down. Yeah. Um, stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's, it is an interesting uh, aspect of the design. And, and also, like, uh, I think the, there's like an in law explanation for it. That when they were messing around with the prototypes, they found it had this kind of in-between mode. Yeah. So they kind of kept that. Supposedly, it says this in this <laughs> Macross book. I've got, but yeah, that's quite interesting. <laughs> but it adds versatility. Like you can see a level of versatility. You know, they can get in the go-walk mode, and they've kind of got mm-hmm. some of the agility of the speed of the fighter, and they've got kind of the maneuverability of the robot bit as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's really, really interesting idea, and you know, really kind of fully kickstarted the whole transforming mecha thing in anime, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, it was really, really key in that respect. 
Absolutely, yeah. It also gets used to quite quite funny effect when uh, Zentrali gets kicked in the face by uh, yeah. by the Gawak mode at one yeah. point. <laughs> There's also the uh, the armored Valkyrie yeah. as well, uh, which is really sadly underused. Very very underused, yeah. It looks it looks really nice with the huge armored chest pieces and the missile salvos on the shoulders yeah. and stuff. But it's only in the one episode in the TV show, isn't it? Yeah. I like the idea that the armor pieces can be like ejected by the pilot for more maneuverability than just becomes a normal Valkyrie again. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the armored Valkyrie toys that they brought out followed that design where you know you could have it as a normal Valkyrie and then you could put the you clip clip the chest pieces on. Yeah. And open the sort of missile salvos and then you could remove them and it was just like back to standard, the standard Valkyrie again. And given how most of these shows were essentially glorified toy adverts, mm. I'm very surprised that it just didn't get pushed more through the latter yeah. bit of the episode. Because uh, it's of one the of the most popular toys. Yeah. It's a really popular toy within like sort of Macross fandom. You know, there's been loads of revisions of it and you know re-releases of it and stuff over the years. Um, so it is quite strange that they didn't pimp that more, really. Yeah, it's very, um, very the only other time you really see it is in the movie, I guess. So. Yeah. Yeah, very unusual. There's various sort of other mecha that mm-hmm. you see sort of that tend not to fly. They just tend to be robots or more like sort of glorified tanks, don't they? Yeah, like heavy yeah. armor types, aren't they? Like yeah. sort of walkers with with guns and missile launchers and stuff. You've got the destroyed tomahawk. I mean, some of them, some of those are quite good looking designs as well. I mean, they're not kind of stand out and they're not as prominent as the Valkyrie is, but I do think they provide good alternatives and. You know, broaden the uh, sort of mecha design within the show without sort of overdoing sure. it. You know, yeah, they're, they're good supplementary designs, I think. Then staying with the UN forces, the Macross itself, I think, is a very, very iconic. Very much so, yeah. Uh, shape, very, very iconic design. I think, you know, the whole massive battleship um, and in its mm-hmm. sort of robot mode, I think, is you know, with the with the two big bits over the shoulders, is um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, is a very, very so even now, I think striking design. I still think today. I think well, nearly forty years, aren't we? We're we're, we're getting yeah, we're thirty-six past, past years, the aren't we? Anniversary now, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, thirty-six years. It's a very, still a very, very striking design. Definitely, and it's it's interesting that like um, it doesn't really resemble a traditional robot. You know, it's no. kind of. I think it's officially referred to as fortress mode quite often, but it's it does obviously have like a sort of humanoid robot shape and yeah. I mentioned that the um the Daedalus and the Prometheus like become the arms in the robot yeah. mode and which leads to the awesome Daedalus attack yeah which is just so cool yeah <laughs> i love that uh cuz it's kind of like both both a kind of like devastating sort of punch yeah. and a kind of like troop delivery system as well yeah that's right yeah because it sort clever. of breaches the hull of the enemy and then delivers like yeah, destroids into the enemy's like ship. Yeah, the door comes down and quite often they just loot a barrage of missiles in, mm-hmm. internally, where the, obviously the armor's weaker and everything else, and you you hit crucial systems and then you take the ship out that way. Mm-hmm. I, to be honest, I always thought a little bit the arms, the Daedalus and the Prometheus were a bit goofy. You do a li- look a little bit like out of place, don't they? A little bit like they don't really look like real arms because they are essentially an aircraft yeah. carrier in a submersible vehicle. So. But I kind of, over time, I still, I kind of, when you see it more in its fortress mode, actually, I mean, there's some really iconic shots of it, or some really mm. nice, the way that the, the Macross is framed. And I think that, yeah. I think that helps to overcome the, the sort of goofiness. And I think there's a little bit of 70s hangover, because I think originally it was conceived in like 79, 80, 
and there were some mm-hmm. delays in it getting aired. And I think yeah, you can it went through of... a lot of production changes, title changes, and all sorts of things. Yeah, and I think that kind of late seventies hangover into mm. into Macross's design. I think that is one of those because I always think with like um, Idion, you know, there's a lot of seventies hangover into very much Idian, so, yeah. Even though it's a very much a sort of there's a lot of more modern sort of real robot stuff in it, mm-hmm. and I think you know a lot of what's in Macross is very modern, but that bit of it I think is. It's still a bit of a 70s hangover, yeah. definitely. It's a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought of that in that way. But yeah, I can see where you're coming from, definitely. And then on the Zentradi, I think the ships, you know, the Zentradi battleships, I love that green, really sort of organic feel to them. Mm. Yeah. I think that's really, really interesting. But I, again, I think with the battle pods, for me, still very much have a bit of 70s yeah. look about them. Mm, quite, it's quite sort of simplistic in the design, aren't they, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, the I suppose they they do look a little bit cartoonish, maybe. Yes. Uh, I if do, that's the yeah. right phrase. Yeah. It's kind of it's kind of hard to hard to describe, but yeah, I think that they do maybe stick out a little bit compared to some of the more organic designs. Yeah, they do, and I think where you've got such really like iconic designs of the Valkyrie, you know, and they use the the Tomcat, which was quite a modern fighter jet. Um, you know, at the time the Tomcat came out, it was a really state-of-the-art quite a futuristic fighter um mm. and then the other sort of mecha designs in the un forces yeah the battle pods feel they feel again very goofy um in relation yes kind of like they almost almost sort of b-movie-ish in a way yeah absolutely like in, a, yeah. in a strange way yeah like you know the the fact they've got a kind of almost like a bit of a sort of chicken thing going yeah. on <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and um again i think you know, I think similar mecha in um, Idian is a good example because they, they mm. have the same sort of... And it's the noise they make, that sort of boink, boink yeah. sort of sound when they walk. Very and sort of cartoonish robot Very noise. cartoonish, yeah. And I think against the seriousness and the modern look of everything else, uh, mm. they feel very, very out of place, I mm. think. You know, and I think in terms of a lot of great design within Macross, they are a very, very low point, Yeah. you know... Yeah, that's not a great bit of design, I think. But again, I think very much a thing of a product of its time. Mm-hmm. So um, the pinpoint barrier system is is quite an imaginative sort of solution to the fact that the Macross isn't able to generate like a full force field, yeah. a full barrier around it. And I think that the series does that sort of thing really well. You know, it creates a good tangible sense of threat. Yeah. By making everything about the Macross not quite work right. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. experimental technology, it's alien technology, it's been reverse engineered. Yes. Things yeah. don't work exactly as the often anticipated. Yeah. The fold system uh, fails them, you know, the fold system actually disappears from the ship. And then they have to make their own way back home, which is a massive setback in the journey. Yeah. And you all the way through the series you've got things that keep on going wrong, you know, they need to repair and reconfigure something and join something back up in, in the ship to make the transformation possible. Yeah. And obviously, when the ship transforms as well, it causes loads of devastation. Yeah, that's the point the I ship. wanted to make. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, you've got civilians clinging on to things <laughs> to like for dear life, while the whole ship reconfigures itself. Cars go down, yeah. down a hole and get trashed and things, and, and buildings you know, break it just up. Just upends yeah. civilian life. And there are fatalities as well. Global yeah. mentions, doesn't he? That people yeah. were killed during the transformation. But you see, over time, they get around it, and they actually have a proper transformation mechanism, and it, you know, it folds and moves out the way. So yeah, it yeah, seals a... parts of the ships off and ship off and stuff, and you know, protects people and stuff and things like that. So 
Yeah, yeah, but they, they overcome those barriers. But yeah. I love the fact that you know it's because it is based on it's not based on Earth technology. It's based yeah. on the Zentai yeah. technology. There's all these pitfalls all the time. Yeah. Um, and another interesting thing about the pinpoint barrier system is the the crew control it with these trackball things that they look <laughs> like the trackball in an old arcade game. Yeah. And around the time that Macross came out, there was quite a few games yeah. in the arcades yeah. that used the trackball. Yeah. Uh, like a lot of the old Atari stuff, and st- I wonder if that was an influence, yeah, I, you know, like video I, games. I, I would be very, very surprised if it wasn't an influence. I'd be very, very surprised. Yeah. Again, and it probably kind of makes it possibly a little bit more relevant with what kids were doing mm. at the time, because they can say, "Oh yeah, I'm controlling the barrier system on the Macross," you know, and <laughs> you know, when they're um, not putting their um, whatever hundred yen coins into the arcades or whatever it would have been. <laughs> Looking at the artwork, the animation, and sort of some of the other designs, I think mean, I'll start with Mickey Moto's character designs. You know, I think they are they're very distinctive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the, a lot of the character designs are quite good. You know, I think um, yeah, there's good I differentiation agree. between the characters. Um, I know a lot of people so. sort of struggle with these character designs, but um, no, I mean I really like them. You know, I think they're really. I good. really like them as well. I think they've, they've held up well. You know the. Yes. The uh, like you say, there's there's a lot of variation. You know, you do see some series where, you know, especially if you know the character designer quite well, you can see the the kind of uh, landmarks in the design, and they do do similar characters. You yeah. know, we've talked about yes. we've talked about Yaz, and uh, and you know, like various other people there, uh, Yama and and yeah. people of that sort of LQ, you know, do have some sort of ones that they've used more than once. But it's very varied in that course, which is something I really like. Yeah. I mean, there are some odd ones. Um, there's a couple of characters that have like black eyes. Yes, and I was just... going to mention that. I've got that on my notes. There's there's an engineer guy. Yeah. And it's during the scene where they're discussing the full system disappearing, yeah. and it it looks quite creepy, doesn't it's it? It's really almost like creepy. It's or something. Yeah. And I like... wonder if that was an animation error or like an art error, yeah. and they meant to like you know sort of draw more of it, or whether they just were going for a distinctive and weird character design. I have yeah. no idea. I can't work it's it out. It's a very very strange design and. Is I think it may even be the same character who appears later on. Yeah. Uh, because he's it's a character who both times is speaking to Global. Yeah. And he seems to be some sort of engineer or like crew. Yeah, so I think it is yeah. the same guy. But yeah, that is so weird looking. It really it's is really quite bizarre. I mean, I remember it just it does, but it's creepy as you say. He just looks really creepy. He's just got these jet black eyes. Um, and everyone else has got normal eyes around him, and it's like no one bats an eyelid. The fact that he's got these devil <laughs> eyes, you know. Um, he's I... a second alien race that's just infiltrated <laughs> the Macross. You know, there's, there's an entire new race they didn't even know about. <laughs> but, like I said, I can't work out whether it was just it was someone having a bit of a laugh, it was an animation mm. error, or what. I but know, it's, but it it's just... in it twice, isn't it? It's in a quite early episode, and it's in quite a later, a later episode. episode. Yeah, exactly. So it seems to be on purpose, but it's such a strange yeah, design, just, it really yeah, is. Yeah, it's a very strange thing to do. It, it, it's because the thing is, it really, really stands out. Because um, <laughs> as you say, those early scenes when he's talking about the fold system going, um, he's right there, really prominent in the scene, and he's just got these. Dead art. Oh yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. It is. I'm glad you brought that one up because I think I might have. I don't don't have that portion of my notes nearby. I might have forgotten about that bit. <laughs> yeah, very very um, very odd. So regarding the animation, I mean, some episodes look great, and other ones, unfortunately, have a very noticeably lower yeah. quality animation. But a lot of the episodes can be frustratingly inconsistent. Yeah, yeah. You know, like an amazingly animated space battle with the sort of Valkyries and the um, Zentradi yeah. sort of uh, mecha can be followed by a totally off-model character drawn. Yeah. 
that is very, very different to the usual. And I think it's worth pointing out here that we watched a Blu-ray of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got that benefit of the of clarity and sharpness and, and everything. Yeah. And when we started watching it prior to the review, I mean, I, I sort of tweeted you on the end and said, you know, the first few episodes actually look really amazing. Yeah, um, they really do. You know, yeah. and, they, and they really, really do. And then after that, you, you do really get into this inconsistency. Um, mm-hmm. Like episode 11, we've talked about prior to this. I mean, it's just like, well, I mean, what on earth was going on there? You know, it was like... Yeah, it's a it shame because awful. there's a lot of good scenes in that episode. Yeah. You know, it's a key episode. Um, It has a lot of good stuff in there. And in, in terms of story, it's a really good episode. But yeah. unfortunately, in terms of production values, it lets it uh, lets the side down a lot, yeah. doesn't it? And then you have episodes like 27, which look, from start to finish, look absolutely stunning. You know, I mean, it really, really... Some of the detail in that, it just... Oh, it's just amazing. You know, when when the Earth gets hit by the sort of barrage of, like, Centauri uh, sort of um, fire, and you see the sort of soldier, like, sort of, um, you know, kind of protecting the little girl and them both getting blown up and that sort of thing. Um, Just, like, buildings coming apart and all all the sort of really detailed hand-drawn stuff just looks fantastic, doesn't it? Um, but then in between that, it, you know, and it's actually um, there's a scene. I think it's in the first. I think it's in the second episode when um, he crews rescuing Minmay, and there's some really, really interesting use of camera angles. Because there's there is, a bit yeah. where it goes like 180 degrees over the top mm-hmm. or underneath, you know, and there's some real sort of dynamic feel to it, and some, like I say, some really interesting camera angles, and. There's some sporadic bits through some battle scenes throughout the show, and it's just like it's so innovative for mm. the era. You know, it's like it was really sort of sort of new feel and sort of like I say innovative fresh, yeah. and fresh, um, a really clever thinking in how how you actually frame add those scenes, frame in. those scenes, and add add something different to the series. You know? Yeah, I get the feeling that they really thought about the anatomy of each scene and storyboarded yeah. stuff very heavily. You know, much like people would on a movie, um, obviously yeah. storyboard is a big part of anime in general, but I feel like they really broke it down with some of these uh, battle scenes and action yeah. scenes. and Things like the scene where Minmi is uh, saved when she's in free fall. They feel like big set pieces, kind of like you would get yeah. in a movie. You know? Yeah, but as you say, but in between that, you get a lot of off-model stuff. Mm. It's very inconsistent. Yeah. You know, you have runs of scenes that are amazing, then mm-hmm. scenes that are bad. You have episodes that are really good, then episodes that are bad or somewhere in between um so yeah it's a very very hit and miss look thing but you know it's one of those things where the story really just carries it well above yeah um you know what it looks like absolutely it's a real shame that the fight between hikaru's batroid and britai um was kind of like um fluffed with the yeah. animation problems because that would have been awesome yeah it would have been yeah right. Yeah, as it just it just looks all over the shop there, and it, it does. the fact you have this kind of almost wrestling match, and yeah, Britt Eye sort of gets the upper hand, and he kind of like body slams Hikaru in that, and Max kind of gets gets his like him in an arm lock and stuff, yeah. doesn't he? It's it's great that whole scene. It, like it's still the whole episode is still really good in terms of like the story yeah. and everything that happens in it, but it it is let down slightly by yeah. by the animation, unfortunately. But that has so many good things in it. It's a shame that that one in particular uh, they kind of dropped the ball on it a little bit. Yeah. And then looking at some other general things, I think throughout the series, there's some very good things about how they portray warfare. There's a bit where the radar room or the communication room gets destroyed. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the bridge, they're talking to it, then it gets taken out and you kind of see it 
sort of wrecked and some bodies there you know and they say oh they're not there anymore sort of thing and there's another bit where um after a battle they see like a destroyed valkyrie floating in front of them and there's mm-hmm. that realization that there's actually a human cost to what they're doing you know there's quite a yeah. few bits through the series like that which i think really really um really lend power to the to the war definitely you know mm-hmm. the depth of what's going what these people are going through and, and therefore you understand why Hikaru, um, he struggles with being in the the military and why, mm-hmm. you know, there's such a difficult sort of period or um, yeah. time of everyone's life, really. So, you know, there's quite Absolutely, really yeah. clever bits use of that throughout the series. Yeah, when it underlines it, it does it in, in such a way that, like, it does have an impact. And I really like that. Yeah, I agree. And so regarding the music, the main theme is quite memorable. And I feel that it suits the show quite well. A lot of shows from the early 80s and even, you know, going back as far as the 70s have the kind of ballad audience, yeah. you know, some old guy crooning yeah. um, <laughs> rather than, you know, the more sort of pop and rock sort of influence yeah. stuff that we or like or just the sort of atmospheric score type opening yeah. with no lyrics yeah. that we'd get later on. Because I feel like in the mid 80s, to me, there was more of a shift towards that sort of stuff, either yeah. atmospheric scores or pop and rock openings. But I do like the opening theme, and I think it's one of those opening themes where it suits the animation and yeah, the complement each I other. Yeah, do, I do agree with that, yeah. It's a really nice opening sequence, and it kind of does give you quite a good flavour of the show. Yeah. The other thing I have to say about the music, there's a lot of music in this that reminds me of the music from the original Gundam series. There's lots mm-hmm. of tr- sort of very military um, yes. drums and trumpets. Mm-hmm. And it, and I always, whenever I hear it, it always reminds me of some of the infield music from Gundam. Mm, I can see that, yeah. But the other music as well, I think if you exclude Min May songs, which you know, um, I think some are a little bit overused. Some are better than others. Yeah. And yeah, like I say, yeah, they don't really do anything for me. But yeah, the other sort of background music to the show, I think, is actually pretty good. And as you say, mm. I think starts to move on the music within anime. Mm. It does very. I would agree. So yeah. Sort of feels more tra- um, transitional sort of yeah. period I mean a lot of the score music is quite epic as well you know it, yeah. like the music that they use for the transformation and like the Daedalus attack and stuff yeah, like that yeah. I feel kind of gets me a bit pumped up when I'm yeah. watching it it's, yeah. it just it does kind of complement like the action uh, especially in some of the more kind of dynamically animated and really well done scenes um, there's also a piece of music that's used for very chilled scenes uh, where characters are relaxing and there's often like sort of just social interactions between the characters yeah, and people talking yeah. and stuff it starts off quite militaristic, but then it becomes very pleasant and kind of like light. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's quite it's quite a nice piece that as well. And it but it's funny how it starts off sounding quite dynamic yeah. and like action music, and then it just melts into something that's very chilled. I like that one. But also speaking about the soundtrack, but going away from music for a second, just uh, the sound effects. Yeah. We've got to discuss discuss some of the noises that they use in the series because there's all these noises in the bridge scenes. There's a kind of low pitched kind of like. Yeah. Yeah. on the on the bridge all the time and I find it quite distracting sometimes because <laughs> <laughs> it's constantly there throughout yeah. all the bridge scenes you hear this noise repeatedly and there's also the echo on the Zentradi speech yeah. Yeah. and um, sometimes I do find both those things a little bit distracting Yeah. because they're so constant throughout the series Yeah. there's, there's no let up <laughs> but those things I think I like the fact that there is that attention to detail within the sound mm. you know we talked about some of the attention yeah, yeah. to detail in the anime you know how they frame and detail the battle scenes and it goes mm-hmm. all the way through the um, soundtrack and the sound effects mm-hmm. as well there's a lot yeah. of, there's a lot of very specific effort 
put into a lot oh, of yeah. very specific things Definitely. through macros. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I found them a little bit distracting at times, but I do appreciate the fact that they're there at the same time, you know, because yeah. it does give you that sort of sense of depth that they've thought about the fact that they're not going to, yeah. you know, the Zemtradi aren't going to necessarily sound 100% like human voices and, you know, yeah. that there, are, there is going to be noises going on on the bridge and stuff. That sort of thing is all kind of, you know, accounted for, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And from there, moving on to our sort of final thoughts of the series, really, it's, you know, it's impossible to say that it isn't a key series within mm. Mecca's history. Um, you yeah, know, it does, sure, yeah. you know, for all the things we've talked about with the, the love story, certainly some of the detail within the animation and sound, you know, I think it is, you know, it fully deserves that landmark mm. cult Stairs. epic sort of series status. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, while it can have quite inconsistent production values, when it looks beautiful, it really does look beautiful. Yeah. It has a great cast of characters, you know, a really good storyline overall. Yeah. It could do without the recap and filler episodes, but putting that aside, I think that the pacing is really good for the most part, but it falls down a little bit in the post-war episodes. It could have condensed yeah. a little bit. But I don't think that the series come to an end at episode 27 in the with the structure it had, would have been completely 100% satisfying for me. No. There's a couple of other things I would have liked to say, but like I said, they could have reordered that and put that before yeah. the final battle. But I, I am really, really glad that a lot of the scenes in the post-war stuff exist, like the scenes with yeah. uh, the bridge kind of being taken up that final time and the yeah. map taken off. That stuff's great. Because I, I just I just love that, that uh, whole sort of uh, thing where the characters all unite for one final time. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of feels really good. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I, I agree with a lot of that. And it is an absolute recommendation. You you really have to kind of see it. It's fully, as we said, it fully deserves its cult status. And if you're a Mecha fan or interested in the history of Mecha anime, you have to see Macross. For me, out of the big four, as I said before, I think I, I place it at the, you know, and I'm sure I'm going to get crucified on Twitter for this, but, you know, out of the big four... It sits at number four for me, really. If I look at the love story, is ten out of ten. I think it's beautifully portrayed. Um, some of the battle scenes and some of the the war story is really good. Yeah. As I said, the culture bit doesn't really it just appeal doesn't really push much. doesn't appeal. It doesn't really push my buttons like the story in like Votomes or Gundam really does for me. I still feel exactly the same way today as I did when I first watched the series in the way that you get to episode twenty seven and then you have this. Mm very thought feels tacked on second or you know last third of the show i don't know i, I can't get over that sort of break in flow mm. it, it really does yeah. spoil the flow of the story for me it's not perfect no you know no series is you know and if i have to wrap it up and it's those things that ultimately bump it a little bit it down for me you know i mm. think as a no overall narrative an overall story thing i think there are other series really of the iconic series and that 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 mm -hmm. just do it that little bit better um, yeah for me you know i yeah. score this an eight you know as i said 10 out of 10 for like the love story and some of the other bits but yeah those things they just detract from it as a as an overall mm. story arc for me yeah i see where you're coming from i'd probably go with a nine i mean that might seem a little bit high considering all the uh the flaws that i've mentioned but i just think overall it's just such an enjoyable series and it has got a lot of flaws and i do recognize those but yeah it's just those characters are just so wonderful and yeah. it just has such a um, level of detail in like universe building in it that is fantastic. Yeah. I do agree with you, however, that other series, especially, you know, mecha series that as a complete package, you know, 
with a lot less flaws work better. Yeah. But it's just um, a series that I've always really loved from the first time I watched it. And despite those niggles, I still feel very strongly that it is it is a very good series. And, it is. Yeah. yeah you know, it is. A name for me, I would say. Yeah. yeah and, you know, there's, there's so much good in it that, you know, I could argue a nine. Yeah. So a whole hard recommendation of, yeah, overall. It really, really is a must-see. It, it really is. Definitely deserving of its classic stays. Yeah. So next we'll review the Do You Remember Love movie. This was a movie from 1984, directed by Noboru Ishiguru and Soji Karamori. Like many anime TV shows that became movies in the 80s, it's you know basically a massively condensed version of the sort of Macross TV series with new elements. And I think you probably had a very similar experience to me, you know, getting into anime in the UK in the 90s, where we got quite a few movies in, that had yes. this sort of format. They were kind of like a sort of highlight reel of either a TV series or an anime manga adaptation that had like loads of the main points in, but kind of, you know, all jumbled together and not really that cohesive for a new fan. Yes, that's right. Like somebody coming to it for the first time would be like, well, it looks really cool and everything and it's beautifully animated, but I don't really know who all these people are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the movie, the movie essentially hits all the same beats as the TV series, but as you say, it's just a in a more condensed form the way it starts i think you know it gets off it has that title card which essentially covers the first couple of episodes within yeah. sort of 30 seconds um, absolutely and yeah. then min may is already a superstar by the time <laughs> this film starts so they're yeah. already on the edge of space uh, edge of the That's solar right. system so i to be honest i i personally think it does quite a good job of wrapping that up and telling you that bit mm. i think it's worth saying now that of course you will benefit if you've seen a tv series to of watch course, this film you know it'll give a bit more context to that already won't it absolutely definitely i mean um there are a lot of uh, films from that era that, that don't uh, do it as well as this movie does i know that's that was kind of me pointing out the fact yeah. that there's a lot of them that drop you straight into stuff. They, they don't really make a lot of sense. This one is is much more successful in yeah, that regard. Yeah, I agree. It gives you a lot more setup and it gives you like what you need to know before going in, even if some elements, if you've seen the TV series, do seem a little bit kind of rushed, but that's just the nature of a movie, really. You can't fit all that stuff in. Um, a big difference to the TV series is that Earth was kind of bombarded by the Zentradi in the initial attack yes. as the Mac was launched, and there was no sort of like build up to that climactic battle like earth was pretty much devastated in the first attack yeah and that's like sort of continuity is quite different in that way yeah you know and that would ultimately then plays quite key with the love story aspect you know mm. we focus quite a bit on that in the tv series review and fundamentally it's still kind of like the key story through the film um mm -hmm. and the way the relationship sort of pairs off you do get that bit with Min Mei and Hikaru sort of stuck together on the Macross, mm -hmm. but that sort of yeah. plays out slightly differently because the, the way they get there, and then, you know, when they come out of that, they're exposed to the paparazzi, and, you know, there's yeah. a big thing, and that, you know, that plays slightly uh -huh. differently, and then when Misa and Hikaru end up on the ruined earth, you know, and you get a bit more mm -hmm. of the backstory. Um, yeah, there's this, that. like, um, dinner scene, isn't there, where the yeah. relationship starts to bloom, you kind of have this uh, dinner in a kind of ruined, like, sort of old building that, uh, and, you know, with all this, get lays out all this sort of crockery. Yeah. And it's, I suppose it's kind of similar to the sort of scene when she's looking after him and she's going to clean this yeah, house. Yeah, exactly. Like, 
yeah. kind of mother to them. That scene gets a lot of criticism. A lot of people don't like that scene. Um, mm. They think it's really silly. But I think in the end of that, and a lot of people don't like that Earth section. So, you mm. know, a good, I don't know. I mean, the film's two and a, two and a bit hours long and probably a good yeah. sort of 20 minutes or so is spent, maybe even longer. It's a big chunk of the film is where Hikaru and Misa are on, on the Earth themselves. Um, yeah. And, they, you know, and that reali- they don't realise they're on Earth. At first of all, do they? You know, and yeah, that's kind of a twist in the movie, really, isn't it? You know, and that's quite. And I really like the way that plays out. And then there's just mm-hmm. this loneliness, and then they think they're just going to end up dying on the planet together before they're rescued. And that's where they first have their kiss. And I think that yeah. plays out really well in developing how you know Hikaru is very much about Minmay at the start, but then mm-hmm. being abandoned with her, the natural attraction between them blossoms in sure. a in a a bit more of a compared to the TV series, a bit more of a desperate way, a bit more of a sad yeah. way, because they're mm. now, um, you know, they're the castaways on this abandoned earth. Uh, absolutely, because obviously they had the sort of, we mentioned the kind of castaway style episode with uh, with Minmi, and it's kind of like almost reversed here, really. Yeah. I mean, there's, Hikaru starts to think of her less as a superior and more as a woman. Yeah. And, you know, that, that sort of becomes, you know, it all starts to sort of um, take off in that in that scene, really. Because the, the, previously there was a montage with uh, Hikaru and Minmei having loads of fun and going yeah. on a kind of date and, yeah. you know, like going to this kind of disco with like an anti-gravity thing where yeah. they all take different personas of different people yeah. and stuff. There's a whole long section where he's grown closer to her. Yeah. And then you get a bit of action and a bit of sort of, you know, the Valkyries and stuff like that. And then it sort of slows down at this point when he goes to Earth and we get another sort of section just about the relationships. And I think it's... I think it's actually quite well paced in that regard. Yeah, I, it's worth saying now, you know, I, I really like the way this film tells the macro story. Um, mm-hmm. I think it really, really works for me. I, I, you know, I said that I didn't like the, the sort of story structure with Peak at 27 and then this extended bit, but the film version really, really works for me. And I really, I really like the pacing now. And I don't know whether this is an age thing, you know, <laughs> pacing of films today tend to be a bit different to how they were yeah um, i highly agree and if you're brought up with a certain style i think some of the pacing might be less tolerable to a modern audience which mm. um which i can understand why people you know I've, i completely understand why people find the earth bit a drag but i think it's yeah. a really good atmospheric bit of building up the story and sure, the relationships yeah. i agree yeah i mean i really really like that sequence I do. I think it's um, it feels like the relationship kind of naturally builds, really. Yeah. Rather than kind of being forced. I mean, Misa and, and Hikaru have a lot less understandings and drama in the movie, but I guess because of the running time more than anything. Yeah. But there's like there's the one scene where Misa comes in to see uh, Minmi hugging Hikaru and he tries to shrug it off, but he upsets Minmi yeah. and then he tries to placate her. Yeah. And she runs off, but instead of more like indecision drama like the TV series and the post war stuff. He simply just declares his love for her right off the bat. Yeah. And although you know, there's, he has sort of grown. There's still been a little bit of drama, but it's obviously being a movie. There's not enough room for that kind yeah. of constant yeah. back and forth. So it is uh, more kind of to the point in that way. You know. But uh, but I do think that it's it is handled quite well considering the short running time they've got yeah. to work with. And it gets off, you know, the bit at the beginning where. Hikaru takes the Valkyrie and takes Mimei off round the rings of Saturn, you know, all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's a really good sequence, and that quickly recreates the sort of playful relationship that they mm. had to start with. 
Um, yeah. You know, and then Misa's giving him a hard time for because they have to sort of come, you know, they come under attack and she has to go and rescue him and she's giving him a hard time. So, it, you know, it, it builds all those blocks, but I just think it, it builds them in a very, very effective way for me. Yeah, it um, does, yeah. I mean, I think that um, a few characters are sort of shortchanged by the running time. You know, we yeah. don't get a lot of Roy, yeah. for example, which is a shame, and he, he dies even more kind of uh, horribly this time uh, with barely any screen. Yeah, and he does die a very, um, he does die a much more violent death in this film. Mm. Um, we had a question from um, Dave at Goatius Day from the Chinese cartoon podcast, and he said, how uncomfortable did Roy Fokker and his comments about women make you feel given that it's 2018? And it's it's worth pointing out, there's a scene where Hikaru's uh, mm. there with me, so Roy's there drunk with Claudia, um, mm-hmm. He has this very uncomfortable sort of rant at Hikaru about, yeah, does. you know, he should take what he wants and he should That's treat women, right, yeah. you know, and it, and yeah, in today, post Me Too and all the rest of it, yeah, I mean, it does mm. feel very uncomfortable. Yeah, it is a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? I mean, he's he's shown as a, as a sort of player and a kind of playboy, Yeah. but it seems to be more of an act in the TV series, really, you yeah. know, he's, he's trying to keep up appearances and make yeah. his... His men kind of respect him because yeah. they're all sort of like you know lads, lads. Yeah. But but in in fact he is really devoted to Claudia, as we as we sort of discussed. But in this he does just really seem quite. Yeah. <laughs> like he's got some pretty outdated views. Yeah. I mean just just the way that he he talks about sort of uh, taking women rather than yeah. You know sort of uh, it is it is very very dodgy. Uh, yeah. especially and as I, and I think he says is, to Misa something about yeah. even if um, even if you're right and he's wrong, you should still admit you're wrong and stuff like that. You know, yeah. you know, it's very. Mm. And then and then he goes and he sort of starts groping Claudia in front of them. You know, and it it is a bit of an uncomfortable scene. You know, Roy is far more of a chauvinist in in this film. Um, mm. Like I say, and he, and he meets a much more violent death as well. And I think that ties into something about the general tone of the film. Because um, we had no. a question from Mark Ferrier, apologies if I've pronounced that wrong, um, at Zillion29, and he says, why are the Daryl characters so unlikable? Were they trying to be serious and edgy? Everyone seems to be so moody, and all attempts at levity feel so flat. I think this film, the tone of this film is much darker. Yeah. Um, it's much it's grittier much than the TV series. TV series. And I think mm. that comes across in the characters yeah. as a whole, because Exodol and Britaya, they are drawn far more grotesque yeah. Than they are they in the TV series. They look a lot more series. sinister. They're kind of yeah. like biomechanical, and they've got like sort of you know one of them has a big sort of brain kind of bulging out yeah. of his head and throbs and everything. Yeah. And I think even Exodol has like tentacles and stuff, doesn't he? Like. Yeah. You know, they, they, it's they are very strange designs, and they you know they're a lot less human looking than yeah. they were in the TV series. That is also a, a thing that I sort of feel that there's not uh, that much room for character growth in a movie. Yeah. So you can't really build on those characters and make them as likeable as you can in a TV show, really. I think, the, you know, the the key characters are as likeable as you need them to be. I mean, apart from, apart from Roy, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, it is it is a sort of problem with any kind of movie, really, that's, that's had a sort of longer source material. Yeah, so I think the characters are unlikable. I think I think that's just the tone of the film. You know, I think <laughs> Min Mei's a bit more brattish, um, he crew, as you said, I completely agree, has a bit more of an edge to him. He's a bit less innocent as well. I mean, there's the in the montage scene after he's sort of been clo- growing close at the Minmay, um, at the end of the sort of montage scene, he's kind of looking at this love hotel. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you sort of like try to push it towards her, then she yeah. just pushes them away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah. no, I'm not having any of that. <laughs> <laughs> in retelling the story, they were just doing something different, and they they mm-hmm. they took this film in a slightly different place, or put yeah. it in a slightly different place to where the TV series was. Yeah. A brand new take, like sort of on the reality kind of take on it, I guess. Yeah. There's some very stylish um, and beautifully animated segments in it. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, um, I love that uh, scene where Max fights Millia. Mm. And you sort of fly inside the ship in, in its incomplete darkness. Yeah. But then when they're firing at each other and the muzzle flashes illuminate yeah. uh, the valves. And you can only kind of like see when somebody's like firing. That is really cool. Yeah. And I love the way that uh, Millia's revealed for the first time to Max as well. Yeah. When a helmet comes off and he sees her face and he's kind of looking up at the giant. Yeah. Uh, version of her and he, he sort of mutters beautiful to himself yeah um it's that is done really well i was gonna say uh, that that scene in particular I, I think is such clever use of um lighting of mm. placed you know framing objects and one of the other things i like about that scene as well and it goes back to something i said when we reviewed um the third galleon ova in that it mm-hmm. doesn't use much music it relies yeah. on sound effects and mm-hmm. mechanical sounds for the atmosphere and everything. It doesn't rely on music. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Um, yeah. And there's another bit later on. I think it's after the um, Do You Remember Love sequence where there's, um, or during that sequence where, where Min Mei's singing, there's no music. It's just her singing, you know. And again, yeah. it, it uses the visuals and the sound effects to develop the atmosphere and to convey mm-hmm. what's going on rather than just relying on music. And both mm-hmm. those bits, I think, are really good. But... Yeah, that is a fantastic scene. Um, also, the bit at the beginning that I mentioned when Hikaru's taking Minmei around the rings. Mm-hmm. I mean, that scene's, you know, just fantastic looking it. It really, really yeah, is. Yeah, it is. And some of the bits on Earth as well, um, when they're mm-hmm. flying through the sort of clouds and when Hikaru and Misa are on Earth, you know, there's some really, really well animated sequences in this film. Yeah, all the sort of date scenes with, um, you know, Minmei and, and Hikaru where they're sort of floating around in sort of zero gravity and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really good. And the final battle for me is kind of strangely poignant, I think. Yeah. It's There's something about the interspersing of Min Mei's song with all the violence. Yeah. That makes it that makes it less interesting kind of juxtaposition between the two. Yeah. Like, it seems to be deliberately trying to convey like a contrast between like the beauty of her music and, and like culture in general and how brutal war is. Yeah. And there's, there's this like... There's this point where they seem to be underlining that, where this civilian just gets get like gets decapitated. Yeah. His head flies through the air in gory detail. Yeah. And then it just sort of cuts to this kind of beautiful shot of Minmay singing, and it's and it's just the way that it's all mixed together. Yeah. Uh, I just really think that the way it's all cut is uh, perfect. It's yeah. amazingly animated, and it it makes us wonder what sort of manner was an effort went into yeah. the production. And I think that's worth uh, expanding on as well because this film is absolutely gorgeous the level yeah really every is. every frame of this film is animated with such a level of detail it's i mean i think it even you know even compared to great films like akira and royal space force i, I mean i think mm-hmm. the level of, of the detail and attention you know it was a real must have been Absolutely. a proper labor of love for the people that worked on it i mean i think it Absolutely. was like you know it was one of those things it's like you know, blow your socks off with it. You know. Yeah, yeah, go go crazy. Because <laughs> uh, I mean, when I first saw it, it kind of boggled my mind how they managed to achieve some yeah. something so visually stunning and complex. I mean, Magros has this kind of reputation for you know, like 
like millions of projectiles and missiles flying yeah. everywhere and you know crafts weaving in and out of each other and that is it's never shown in more wonderful detail yeah and in this film you know there's there's like about a million missile salvos on the screen at once with the Valkyries yeah. all weaving in and, out, and it just looks great and endless kind of laser beams flying yeah, everywhere yeah. And just and, but it's just also the way that they cut uh, Minmay and all the other characters and what's happening in between the, uh, the the sort of final battles like the character moments and stuff yeah it's just must have been storyboarded like really well and kind of just meticulously planned i think yeah absolutely and um one of the uh, good examples is like when during the title sequence when the macros comes sort of out of the darkness oh the yeah way it builds up i mean i love that yeah I love, you know again it's one of those things that sort of shows the detail mm. yeah it is really cool. you know yeah. and it's very very clever the way it sort of comes into view and all the detail builds up on it um sort of frame after mm. frame i mean it is an exceptionally well animated film uh, it really it is. must have been it must have been quite amazing to see it at the cinema in in back in the day yeah. you know when this was released in japan it would be great to see a screen of this at like some UK con or like yeah, you know a yeah. re-release or something, because it would look incredible on the big screen. It really would. Oh, I think so. I've, I've seen a couple of um, you know quite notable sort of big anime films at the cinema, uh, Kira and Ghost in the Shell and um, yeah, and yeah, a, a few others. But um, but this would be like on another level. I think it really really would. But yeah, it, it's it just I think that you know it really is one of those. It's one of the best adverts, hand-drawn animation. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. We should agree. still be doing things this way. Because we watch this on Blu-ray, um, mm-hmm. you know, and Blu-ray is is such the format to, to show this off. I mean, like with things like Akira and Ghost in the Shell, but you know, I have to say it's possibly one of the most probably, well, quite possibly the best animated film I've ever seen. I mean, I really think the level of detail in this is absolutely stunning. I mean, Dave, something else really. The Chinese cartoon podcast reviewed this last year i think it was and dave said this is the most 80s film ever and i you know <laughs> I, I have yeah. to agree with that sentiment because it, it really epitomizes 80s mm. animation 80s anime i think it you know in the way it looks the level of detail you know the action mm-hmm. the kind of that gritty 80s sort of tone yeah and everything you know i think it yeah i think it is i think it it, it kind of highlights that um, but as you say, it's, it's like a great... snapshot of the era, really. In, in it a is, yeah. Way. Yeah. It is. I mean, although some plot points aren't, you know, can't be handled as well as a TV series simply because you don't have enough runtime to do that, it kind of overcomes some of those shortcomings in different ways. Yeah. You know, yeah. like the mythology is a little bit different with regards to like Zentrali's origins and things like that. Yeah. And you know, it's but it's it changes things just enough to kind of make up for some of the shortcomings it has in other areas. I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I pref- to be honest, I prefer this to the TV series. I I really, really like this film. I really liked it the first time I saw it. Um, and, and watching it this time, and watching it in a Blu-ray version, and actually really seeing that detail, it was, I watched it again within, within a few days. It was just, I enjoyed watching it so much. You know, I think as a film, the story just works a bit, a bit better for me. I quite like mm. the dark, edgy tone of it. I quite like the way the characters are portrayed this time mm-hmm. around compared to the TV series. It just, you know, as a film, at telling that story, it just really, really works for me. I sort of feel that while I love it as a kind of standalone film, I'm probably a little bit more attached to the TV series because of the amount of character development and stuff like that. But mm. that's always been, you know, something I like. And, you know, it's something that kind of takes 
how can I put it? Something that I've always enjoyed most about, you know, like a long running TV show. So that's just like down to my personal preference. But I do think that um, as a standalone movie, it is fantastic and it is a really good film just in general. You know, just the its pacing, its animation, its it's kind of like uh, the its use of like um, perspective and camera yeah. angles and just you know the framing of the battles and like you know everything. Like we said, I said before. It must have been storyboarded in extreme detail yeah, and just really yeah. well planned to get this level of like creativity in in terms of like both the action and and just everything in it really. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, yeah. And you, you know the TV series did that to a certain degree. You know they had a lot of like pieces that we mentioned that feel kind of like set pieces of a film that were really yeah. gorgeous. It also had some production issues yeah. that you know weren't so great as well. But um, when they were really trying in the TV show, it felt. You know, it did have that kind of movie-like quality. This just takes it a whole new level, though. Yeah. It really does. So how would you rate Do You Remember Love? It's a difficult one for me, because, like I say, I am quite attached to the TV series yeah. and the way it tells the story and the characters. I want to say an eight and a half, because I kind of want to give it nine, but there's a couple of like things with the plot that sort of bug me a little bit, but I can't knock it as a film. You know, it's such yeah. a good film. Yeah. But it's... It's not perfect, but I mean, like I say, the portrayal of a couple of the characters and things, Roy particularly, because I've always really liked Roy's character, that does kind of bug me a bit. <laughs> but um, it is a brilliant film, and you know, it's I I was kind of verging on a nine when I was when I was first thinking about, it, but I'm going to say an eight point five, yeah. Yeah, see, I, for me, because I haven't got the attachment to the TV series, as I said in the TV series review, you know, mm -hmm. for me, you know, out of the big four, it sits at the bottom of the four, and mm -hmm. it, you know, there are elements that are really good, but and I think that's why maybe as a film it works really well for me. Um, I yeah. love the way it looks. I say the tone and everything else. And, you know, I really, I'm close to giving it a 10, if I'm honest. Um, mm. You know, it is it is right up there. And, and as I said, I enjoyed what I watched it and was kind of so blown up. I haven't watched it for a long time. You know, it's been same over, over 10 thing, years yeah. since, um, since that's I've seen about it. That's the same for me, yeah, actually. Yeah, it will be close, close to that anyway. For me. And I watched it and sat there and was glued. And then within a few days, I'd watched it again because I was just like, oh, I have got to see. You know, I enjoyed it so much. Mm. It was like, you know, I don't feel that urge to get back on the TV series again. But the movie mm. was just like, you know, it it just hits all the right points for me. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm you know I'm gonna go out there and say it's a, a ten. It just it really does just push all my buttons. The um the film mm. it really does. Yeah, I, I do agree with you. It's a fantastic movie and. It's one of those films I kind of look forward to watching. Like, you know, when yes. I've, I kind of like, when I was, when we were like um, reviewing the TV series, as much as I loved the TV series, you know, I did have some of its, you know, less kind of um, well animated yeah. moments in mind and like, you know, some of the sort of more dodgy elements. And I was thinking, I'm really <laughs> looking forward to seeing the glorious, fantastic animation of Do You Remember Love? So, yeah, I was really looking forward to it and it, it didn't disappoint all over again. Um, I think I am more of a story guy than a kind of visual guy, so I think that's why I've kind of marked it down a little bit. But certainly, anyone who's into anime, you you really need to check out the film because it is yeah, amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong, I love story. I mean, I, for me, the stories in you know, like the original Gundam story, that whole space mm -hmm. opera and the colonies bit, and the mm -hmm. you know the the mysticism in Votomes and you know the, mm -hmm. the secret society, the story in those, I absolutely love, which I think. Is why I, you know, I bump, you know, and then with Pat Labour, mm -hmm. you know, the whole slice of life thing, you know, as a story, they're stories that I just prefer to mm -hmm. 
to Magnus's yeah. core story. Um, mm-hmm. And I think maybe, you know, in a condensed form in the movie, looking that gorgeous, it just works better for me than the TV series. Well, I would say that in terms of the top four, Magnus wouldn't be my top one out of the four. I really like it because of the sort of level of kind of emotion and the sort of, you know, yeah. depth of character. And the fact it's the most kind of like, it is the kind of most sort of emotional and most kind of heartfelt of those four, four shows. But in terms of my favourite one, I think it would probably be Foams as my uh, favourite of the kind of big four that you were talking about. Just because that is such a great action-packed show. I agree. Both Homes is my favourite of the of those original franchises as well. Just because they expanded it so much with the yeah, OVAs. It's, it's, the yeah, it's TV series was great on its own, and then all those OVAs were yeah. fantastic. Well, and and just, just built on everything. Just keeps building on it, and that's what's that's what's mm. so good about it. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So the final section we're going to review today is the Flashback 2012 sequel to the TV series. Uh, this was directed by Soji Karamori, and it came out in 1987, which is kind of like the official sequel to... Um, the TV series. Um, yeah. Essentially, it's a 30-minute music video made up of footage from the TV series and from Do You Remember Love with a little bit of uh, new footage at the end. So essentially, it's, it takes the form of what is supposed to be Minmi's final concert before she leaves Earth. And, you know, it's supposed to be um, a kind of send-off concert before um, all the, the main characters get aboard the SDF-2 Mega Road, which is the kind of successor to the Macross, and Misa's ship that she's going to be captain of. But unfortunately, it doesn't really amount to much, really, because there's too little new footage in it. Yeah. At least for me. Yeah. Um, you know, having had so much to say about the TV series and Do You Remember Love, I have almost nothing to say about <laughs> this, because it is... I mean, it's a bit odd, because it takes performance footage from the tv series and from do you remember love mm. um and puts them together and then plays i don't know five or six of her songs it's about 30 minutes long yeah over the top so there's no dialogue through it it is literally mm-hmm. images with minway songs until you get to the end and you get this literally 30 40 minute sec- section where you see um 30 40 second section yeah of minway boarding the mega road and that's it, and that's the you see Misa with a captain's outfit on, on and, and that's it, you know. And it's just, and it's just, it's a tiny little bit at the end of, end of the thirty minutes, um, mm. and so it's kind of non consequential, really. It's it's nice to see they actually boarded the mega road and actually went off to do the colonization um, mission. bit, mm. the mission. But the thirty minutes before it is kind of pointless. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like a, it could have been like a fan-made AMV or something yeah, like that, you know, yeah, one of those anime music videos you see on the internet. Yeah. Um, I think it's only real purpose is if you want to watch some nicely sort of animated clips from Do You Remember Love in the TV series yeah. in rapid succession, and you really like, uh, you know, Min May's music. So it's it's kind of one of those things that, as a kind of music video, as a long-form music video, if you if you like that sort of thing, you know, I guess it serves a purpose for you, but for me... I'd much rather just watch the TV series and Do You Remember Love? Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> the, the, the mishmash of the TV footage with the Do You Remember Love footage looks at odds a little bit as yeah. well because of the difference in quality. Um, and mm-hmm. then the, the 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 new section at the end is kind of more fitting with the animation style from Do You Remember Love. Um, yeah, I mean, 
it just kind of does nothing for me. Um, yeah. It's, it's I an odd choice, really. It is an odd choice. It feels kind of pointless. If they were going to, you know, they'd been better off making, a, even if it was just a, you know, a 24-minute, like, TV episode length OVA to, mm. to sort of show, to conclude it. I, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't really feel like a conclusion. Cause the, no, it doesn't really. You know, or a sequel, rather, because of the bit at the end so long, and you've kind of lost interest. I mean, I was never a great fan of the... Um, Min-made songs anyway, you know, as I said in the TV show. Mm. So, you know, I was kind of completely lost interest by the time it, yeah, it got to the end. So, um, um, I don't like that many of them. I think there's like, there's, there's a few that, like I mentioned in the review, that are better than others. Um, I think that the the song that uh, is used in the finale of Do You Remember Love is uh, is quite good because it, it sort of fits really well with that final battle. Yeah. Um, and it is it is kind of well used, and I do hmm. do think I agree, that's I agree with that. I do agree with that. Yeah. But I think that uh, this just doesn't really serve much of a purpose for no, me. Like I'd, no. I'd much rather watch the other two pieces of media than this, and it's just um, you know kind of just there really. And I, it, if you watch it before, do you remember love? It'll also spoil key yeah. bits of do you remember love. So don't do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point actually. Yeah. Yeah. So make sure you uh, if you do want to watch this if you know if you particularly like the sort of music and soundtrack yeah wait till you've uh, watched the movie definitely yeah um rating wise i mean this is like a four i mean i just yeah i mean it's not terrible it's kind of well edited together it's sort of but yeah it's, it's just yeah. the pointlessness of it really if you and your friends are eating a macros and you're having a few drinks and you just want to see some nicely animated scenes in the yeah. in the background maybe stick it on yeah there's a kind of party back and track but uh, yeah yeah <laughs> other yeah, than I mean, that i can't really see a lot of purpose, no no really. no but i'd think the four from me as well yeah so for this episode uh we've also got a few questions via twitter so uh, we'll dive into them the first one from um dave uh, host of the chinese cartoon podcast at goatius dave on twitter um, i've already answered one of his questions but his other question was why do people like TV version Min Mei, despite the fact that she is just a terrible person in every measure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell us how you really feel, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we discussed like the fact that she is quite a young girl, yeah, and she's quite naive. You know, she she doesn't fully appreciate the complexities of the situation that they find themselves in. I think it's maybe a tiny bit unfair to sort of say that she's a terrible person. She definitely does some terrible things, but I think, you know, she is kind of grown as a person and she's definitely changed a lot by the end of the series. I think if you look at the target audience of the TV series, it was essentially teenage boys. And I think with me maybe being a teenage girl, she's 15 going on 16. I think, you know, that's kind of fitting, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that's probably maybe a realistic representation of girls at yeah. that age. Um, and I think it's kind of probably what, you know, boys chasing girls, you know, it's, you know, yeah, I think everyone's had it where, you know, they blow hot and cold, you know, it, it works mm. both ways. But I think I think that was just fitting to fit the audience that it was portraying mm. to um, at the time. So, I mean, she's terrible. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you look back now, you know, with, you know, the age we're at, yeah, she looks a terrible person, but I think, you know, you probably see it differently if you were a 15-year-old boy. Yeah, so. exactly, um, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's I suppose it's, it is kind of easy to judge. I mean, the, the harshest things that the characters do will probably stick in your mind more 
than the kind of kind, kind of things maybe to some people. But I think that uh, you know the, we've discussed a couple of scenes where she shows a lot of heart, and you know there's like a kind of um, that scene with where she sort of takes over from Global and you know kind of delivers that message of hope to the earth, and yeah. you know other, other things where she can be quite nice, and, it, and she certainly grows a lot by the end of the series, and yeah. definitely uh, has changed as a person by the end. Yeah. And she's a superstar, you know, and, and how many mm. real life celebrities and pop stars are actually probably not very nice people, but yeah. people still, you know, idolise them. So Talk I think, them, yeah. you know, I think in that respect, well, quite a realistic representation. Mm. I, well, I think it's quite natural. Um, Hikaru mm. isn't very nice at times through the yeah. TV series and neither is Misa. So, yeah, you know, I, they're, you know, they're, they're sort of, you know, flawed uh, characters, you know, they're yeah. kind of more like real people, which is why I love the show so much because you know you do get that range of yeah, absolutely kind of um, of know, emotions with them and you know, the, the of the, It is it's the highlight of the TV series, so um, yeah, so yeah, she's terrible, but I don't think she's the only one that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on, so um, from Doc uh, at the subtle Doctor. Um, host of the uh, Waru Deshu podcast. First question: Min May or Misa? Misa for me, easy. Definitely Misa for me. Yeah. Very easy. I think I think we've already communicated that over the course of the review, though. Yeah. And one hundred percent. And the second question: um, Does pineapple salad still bring a tear to your eye? Yeah, I think it's it's a great scene. You know, it is a good scene. Yeah. Um, the whole build up and the way it plays out in Claudia's apartment, I think it's you know it's it's great drama and mm-hmm. characterization and everything. So um, yeah, as we discussed before, such an unusual, uh, it's such an unusual death that scene. Yeah, it really is. Um, but yeah, I, I do love that episode. Yeah. And yes, it definitely bring a tear in my eye. But I'm <laughs> I'm really soft when it comes to things like that though. Like you know, I just get really emotional around me in general. So. Don't read too much into that. <laughs> Tom OK at Cyborg Synapse. Uh, he asks, what are the odds of Harmony Gold freeing this film and Macross in general from its tortured existence of living death? Uh, it's never oh, going to happen. <laughs> Probably never, yeah. There seems to always be um, you know, something something popping up and people saying, oh, is this the glimmer of hope? And then it all just gets shot down. I mean, there was, a, there was more... Um, it was more in the sort of legal battle earlier this year, wasn't it? Yeah. There was some new development, but um, I think the general consensus is that uh, something could still happen after they lose the rights. So I don't know. It's 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 so complicated. I think you'd need one of the best like copyright lawyers, lawyers in the entire world to untangle the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a very very odd situation. And and to be honest, what I from a business perspective, I don't understand why Harmony Gold are holding on to it. If they released mm. if they released all this stuff in the West or in the US, they'd make a mint. They'd have made a fortune mm. by now releasing this yeah. stuff. You know, releasing all the T V series and the movies and all the OVAs and follow up T V series on Blu ray now, people would lap it up. I think they'd make a lot more money than they would from Robotech to be honest with yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, because although Robotech has a niche nostalgia market in America I think it's mainly Americans who are keeping that afloat, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I, certainly not the same nostalgia for it in other territories. No, no. Simply because a lot of them didn't get it. I mean, yeah. we did, like I mentioned before, we didn't get it, at least not till the video era anyway. Um, and so, you know, we're just not that attached to it. You know, it's... And I think it's... 
there'll be a lot of other territories as you know as 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 well as um you know Britain and the US who purchase micro stuff certainly although interestingly um countries like Italy and Hungary got Robotech um right. in the 80s um so. I didn't know that Italy had but I know that they are big on mecha over there there's a there's a huge um sort of a giant robot culture and super robot stuff particularly yeah. as much there yeah, because they got like Mazinger and Grandizer and things like that. Didn't yeah, they? they got all of that stuff through the um, through the seventies and eighties. Um, mm. But Hungary as well, Hungary got a lot of it. Um, mm-hmm. Quite a few of those those countries. So um, yeah, but you know they'd make a fortune selling it. So I I don't get it from a business sense. It's it's stubbornness, which I think is probably harming the company. But but I don't, yeah. I don't see it changing in in any time soon. I in really the near future, yeah. definitely not. No. Okay, so our final question from Seth of the Wild at Berserk Hat on Twitter. He asks, so you think the Zentradi are offended by their representation in Do you Remember Love given that it is a movie that was released within the actual universe of Macross? Given how mm. more grotesque they look uh, compared to the TV series, <laughs> then uh, I would probably be offended, yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, they are kind of portrayed as kind of quite monstrous and sinister, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, definitely. Um and they, they certainly aren't uh, portrayed as kind of uh, you know, nice characters either. So, no, yeah, I'd have to say yes, yes and yes, really. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree with that, yeah. I would say they definitely are offended. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of our first part of our Macross retrospective. We'll come back to it again in probably another sort of three or four episodes and we'll look at the next session so plus two zero some of those right next time on the retro mecha podcast we're going to do something slightly different we're going to look at the five star stories so we're going to look at the first book of the manga and then its anime adaptation talk about each one in its own respective and then talk about how it's been adapted and the comparison between the two formats. So uh, we'll break it up a bit from there. Yes. I'm looking forward to that discussion as well. So uh, yeah, it'll be a good one. Right. Where to find us. So you can find the retro mecha podcast on Twitter at retro mecha. You can find our blog on the internet, retro mecha podcast at wordpress.com. You can email the show retro mecha podcast at gmail.com. Craig, tell us where you can find your blog. Um, you can catch me on um, www.animeheadsretroworld.wordpress um, and also on Twitter at AnimeHeadsRetro. Um, you can find my other podcast, Retro Anime Podcast, on Twitter at RetroAnime. You can find the podcast on the internet on RetroAnimePodcast.com. You can find this podcast and the other podcast on SoundCloud by searching for Retro Mecha Podcast. That's where to find us. So uh, that wraps us up. Another good discussion, Craig. Mm-hmm. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Always say uh, I love talking macros. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good to dig into these uh, into the classics, isn't it? So uh, certainly is. It certainly is. Any excuse, as we said before. As we said before. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Great stuff. Right. We'll call it a day there. Thanks for yep. listening, everybody. Bye, everyone. See Thanks, Greg. Bye. Bye, everybody. The opening and closing theme music to the podcast 
is Molten Alloy from Purple Planet Music. All other music used within the podcast is copyrighted to its respective creators.